This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Today's podcast is a reading of The Doom That Came to Sarnath by H.P. Lovecraft. It's read by Mr. Jim Moon. It runs 22 minutes, and we will be discussing it afterward. There is in the land of Manar a vast still lake that is fed by no stream, and out of which no stream flows. Ten thousand years ago, there stood by its shore the mighty city of Sarnath, but Sarnath stands there no more. It is told that in the immemorial years when the world was young, before even the men of Sarnath came to the land of Manar, another city stood beside the lake, the grey stone city of Ib, which was as old as the lake itself, and peopled with beings not pleasing to behold. Very odd and ugly were these beings, as indeed are most beings of a world yet inchoate and rudely fashioned. It is written on the brick cylinders of Cadatheron that the beings of Ib were in hue as green as the lake and the mists that rise above it, that they had bulging eyes, pouting flabby lips, and curious ears, and were without voice. It is also written that they descended one night from the moon in a mist, they and the vast still lake and the grey stone city Ib. However this may be, it is certain that they worshipped a sea-green stone idol, chiselled in the likeness of Bokrog, the great water lizard, before which they danced horribly when the moon was gibbous. And it is written in the papyrus of Ilanek that they, one day, discovered fire, and thereafter kindled flames on many ceremonial occasions. Not much is written of these beings, because they lived in very ancient times, and man is young, and knows little of the very ancient living things. After many aeons, men came to the land of Manar, dark shepherd folk with their fleecy flocks, who built Thra, Ilanek, and Kadatheron on the winding river Ai. And certain tribes, more hardy than the rest, pushed on to the border of the lake and built Sarnath at a spot where precious metals were found in the earth. Not far from the grey city of Ib, did these wandering tribes lay the first stones of Sarnath. And at the beings of Ib, they marvelled greatly. But with their marvelling was mixed hate, for they thought it not meet that beings of such aspect should walk about the world of men at dusk. Nor did they like the strange sculptures upon the grey monoliths of Ib for those sculptures were terrible with great antiquity. Why the beings and the sculptures lingered so late in the world, even until the coming of men, none can tell, unless it was because the land of Manar was very still, 
and remote from most other lands, of both waking and of dream. As the men of Sarnath beheld more of the beings of Ib, their hate grew, and it was not less because they found the beings weak, and as soft as jelly to the touch of stones and spears and arrows. So one day the young warriors, the slingers and the spearmen and the bowmen, marched against Ib, and slew all the inhabitants thereof, pushing the queer bodies into the lake with long spears, because they did not wish to touch them, and because they did not like the grey sculptured monoliths of Ib, they cast these also into the lake, wondering from the greatness of the labour however the stones were brought from afar, as they must have been, since there is naught like them in all the land of Manar, or in the lands adjacent. Thus of the very ancient city of Ib was nothing spared, save the sea-green stone idol, chiselled in the likeness of Bokrug, the water lizard. This the young warriors took back with them to Sarnath, as a symbol of conquest over the old gods and the beings of Ib, and a sign of leadership in Manar. But on the night after it was set up in the temple, a terrible thing must have happened. For weird lights were seen over the lake, and in the morning people found the idol gone, and the high priest Taranish lying dead as from some fear unspeakable. And before he died, Taranish had scrawled upon the altar of Chrysolite with coarse, shaky strokes, the sign of doom. After Taranish, there were many high priests in Sarnath, but never was the greenstone idol found, and many centuries came and went, wherein Sarnath prospered exceedingly, so that only priests and old women remembered what Taranish had scrawled upon the altar of Chrysolite. Betwixt Sarnath and the city of Ilanek arose a caravan route, and the precious metals from the earth were exchanged for other metals and rare cloths and jewels and books and tools for artificers and all the things of luxury that are known to the people who dwell along the winding river I and beyond. And so Sarnath waxed mighty and learned and beautiful, and sent forth conquering armies to subdue the neighbouring cities. And in time there sat upon the throne in Sarnath the kings of all the land of Manar and of many lands adjacent. The wonder of the world and the pride of all mankind was Sarnath the Magnificent. Of polished desert-quarried marble were its walls. In height, three hundred cubits, and in breadth, seventy-five, so that chariots might pass each other as men drave them along the top. For full five hundred stadia did they run, being open only on the side towards the lake, where a greenstone sea wall kept back the waves that rose oddly once a year 
at the festival of the destroying of Ib. In Sarnath were fifty streets, from the lake to the gates of the caravans, and fifty more intersecting them. With onyx they were paved, save those whereupon the horses and camels and elephants trod, which were paved with granite. And the gates of Sarnath were as many as the landward ends of the streets, each of bronze, and flanked by the figures of lions and elephants, carven from some stone, no longer known among men. The houses of Sarnath were of glazed brick and chalcedony, each having its walled garden and crystal lakelet. With strange art they were builded, for no other city had houses like them, and travellers from Thar and Ilanek and Kardatheron marvelled at the shining domes wherewith they were surmounted. But more marvellous still were the palaces and the temples, and the gardens made by Zokar, the olden king. There were many palaces, the least of which were mightier than any in Thra or Ilanek or Kardatheron. So high were they that, that one within might sometimes fancy himself beneath only the sky. Yet, when lighted with torches dipped in the oil of Dothor, their walls showed vast paintings of kings and armies, at a splendour at once inspiring and stupefying to the beholder. Many were the pillars of the palaces, all of tinted marble, and carven into designs of unsurpassing beauty. And in most of the palaces, the floors were mosaics of beryl and lapis lazuli, with sardonyx and carbuncle and other choice materials, so disposed that the beholder might fancy himself walking over beds of the rarest flowers. And there were likewise fountains, which cast scented waters about in pleasing jets arranged with cunning art. Outshining all the others was the palace of the kings of Manar and of the lands adjacent. On a pair of golden crouching lions rested the throne, many steps above the gleaming floor, and it was wrought of one piece of ivory, though no man lives who knows whence so vast a piece could have come. In that palace there were also many galleries and many amphitheatres, where lions and men and elephants battled at the pleasure of the kings. Sometimes the amphitheatres were flooded with water, conveyed from the lake in mighty aqueducts, and then were enacted stirring sea fights, or combats betwixt swimmers and deadly marine things. Lofty and amazing were the seventeen tower-like temples of Sarnath, fashioned of a bright multicoloured stone not known elsewhere. A full thousand cubits high stood the greatest among them, wherein the high priests dwelt with a magnificence scarce less than that of the kings. On the ground were halls as vast and splendid as those of the palaces, where gathered throngs in worship of Zokalar and Tamash and Lobon, the chief gods of Sarnath, 
whose incense-enveloped shrines were as the thrones of monarchs. Not like the icons of other gods were those of Zokalar and Tamash and Lobon. For so close to life were they, that one might swear the graceful bearded gods themselves sate upon the ivory thrones. And up the unending steps of shining Zircon was the tower chamber, wherefrom the high priests looked out over the city and the plains and the lake by day, and at the cryptic moon and significant stars and planets, and their reflections in the lake by night. Here was done the very secret and ancient rite in Destation of Bokrog, the water lizard, and here rested the altar of Chrysolite, that bore the doom scrawl of Taranish. Wonderful likewise were the gardens made by Zokar the Olden King. In the centre of Sarnath they lay, covering a great space, and enriched by a high wall, and they were surmounted by a mighty dome of glass, through which shone the sun and the moon and the stars and the planets when it was clear and from which were hung huge fulgent images of the sun and moon and stars and planets, when it was not clear. In summer the gardens were cooled with fresh odorous breezes, skilfully wafted by fans, and in winter they were heated with concealed fires, so that in those gardens it was always spring. There ran little streams over bright pebbles, dividing meads of green and gardens of many hues, and spanned by a multitude of bridges. Many were the waterfalls in their courses, and many were the lilied lakelets into which they expanded. Over the streams and lakelets rode white swans, whilst the music of rare birds chimed in with the melody of the waters. In ordered terraces rose the green banks, adorned here and there with bowers of vines and sweet blossoms, and seats and benches of marble and porphyry. And here were many small shrines and temples, where one might rest or pray to small gods. Each year there was celebrated in Sarnath the Feast of the Destroying of Ib at which time wine, song, dancing, and merriment of every kind abounded. Great honours were then paid to the shades of those who had annihilated the odd ancient beings, and the memory of those beings and of their elder gods was derided by dancers and lutenists, crowned with roses from the gardens of Zokar and the kings would look out over the lake and curse the bones of the dead that lay beneath it. At first the high priests liked not these festivals, for there had descended among them queer tales of how the sea-green icon had vanished, and how Taranish had died from fear and left a warning. But as many years passed without calamity, even the priests laughed and cursed and joined in the orgies of the feasters. Indeed, had they not themselves in their high tower 
often performed the very ancient and secret rite in destation of Bokrog the water lizard, and a thousand years of riches and delight passed over Sarnath, wonder of the world and pride of all mankind. Gorgeous beyond thought was the feast of the thousandth year of the destroying of Ib. For a decade it had been talked of in the land of Manar, and as it drew nigh, there came to Sarnath, on horses and camels and elephants, men from Thra, Ilanek and Kardatharon, and all the cities of Manar and the lands beyond. Before the marble walls on the appointed night were pitched the pavilions of princes and the tents of travellers, and all the shore resounded with the song of happy revellers. Within his banquet hall reclined Nargis Hay, the king, drunk with ancient wine from the vaults of conquered Panath, and surrounded by feasting nobles and hurrying slaves. There were eaten many strange delicacies at that feast, peacocks from the isles of Nariel in the Middle Ocean, young goats from the distant hills of Implan, heels of camels from the Banasic Desert, nuts and spices from Sidathrian groves, and pearls from wave-washed metal, dissolved in the vinegar of Thrall. Of sources there were an untold number, prepared by the subtlest cooks in all Manar, and suited to the palate of every feaster. But most prized of all the vivans were the great fishes from the lake, each of vast size, served up on golden platters set with rubies and diamonds. Whilst the king and his nobles feasted within the palace, and viewed the crowning dish as it awaited them on golden platters, others feasted elsewhere. In the tower of the great temple, the priests held revels, and in pavilions without the walls, the princes of neighbouring lands made merry, and it was the high priest, Nekar, who first saw the shadows that descended from the gibbous moon into the lake, and the damnable green mists that arose from the lake to meet the moon, and to shroud in a sinister haze the towers and domes of fated Sarnath. Thereafter those in the towers, and without the walls, beheld strange lights on the water, and saw that the grey rock Acurion, which was wont to rear high above it near the shore, was almost submerged, and fear grew vaguely yet swiftly, so that the princes of Ilanek and of Farrokol took down and folded their tents and pavilions, and departed for the river Ai, though they scarce knew the reason for their departing. Then, close to the hour of midnight, all the bronze gates of Sarnath burst open, and emptied forth a frenzied throng that blackened the plain, so that all the visiting princes and travellers fled away in fright. For on the faces of this throng was writ a madness born of horror unendurable, and on their tongues were words so terrible that no hearer paused for proof. 
Men whose eyes were wild with fear shrieked aloud at the sight within the king's banquet hall, where through the windows were seen no longer the forms of Nargis High and his nobles and slaves, but a horde of indescribable green voiceless things with bulging eyes, pouting flabby lips, and curious ears. Things which danced horribly, bearing in their paws golden platters set with rubies and diamonds containing uncouth flames. And the princes and the travellers, as they fled from the doomed city of Sarnath, on horses and camels and elephants, looked again upon the mist-begetting lake, and saw the grey rock Acurion was quite submerged. Through all the land of Manar, and the lands adjacent, spread tales of those who had fled from Sarnath, and caravans sought that accursed city and its precious metals no more. It was long ere any traveller went thither, and even then only the brave and adventurous young men of distant Falona dared make the journey. Adventurous young men of yellow hair and blue eyes, who are no kin to the men of Manar. These men indeed went to the lake to view Sarnath, but though they found the vast still lake itself, and the grey rock Acurion, which rears high above it near the shore, they beheld not the wonder of the world and the pride of all mankind. Where once had risen walls of thirty cubits and towers yet higher, now stretched only the marshy shore. And where once had dwelt fifty millions of men, now crawled only the detestable green water-lizard. Not even the mines of precious metal remained, for doom had come to Sarnath. But, half buried in the rushes, was spied a curious green idol of stone, an exceedingly ancient idol, coated with seaweed and chiselled in the likeness of Bokrog, the great water lizard. That idol, enshrined in the high temple at Ilanek, was subsequently worshipped beneath the gibbous moon throughout the land of Manar. Hi, I'm Jesse. Hi, I'm Evan. Hi, I'm Trish. Hi, I'm Connor. Hi, I'm Alex. And we're going to talk about The Doom That Came to Sarnath by H.P. Lovecraft. This is first published in a magazine in Scotland, maybe? Um, it's called The Scot in 1920. I think it was issue 44. I looked so hard for this, so hard. I wanted to see like if there was cover, illustration, editorial introduction. I'm not even sure that this theoretical magazine exists. I get the same references to it over and over and over again. Uh, There's no Wikipedia entry. Yeah, I think uh, St. Joshi, you know, found it, and everybody just copying from him because they're giving the exact same information, and there's no, there's nothing. So uh, the version I read was out of, and I think I sent to you guys. It was out of Marvel Tales or something like that, which is in the 30s, and then a later edition. Uh, was in Weird Tales as a reprint. They didn't say it was a reprint, but it was a reprint. No art. 
Um, I did uh, invite Jason Thompson, who did the wonderful adaptation of uh, the Doom that came to Sarnath on online, and then he, I think it's in his uh, big um, Dreamlands uh, hardcover. Um, and I want to talk about that for sure. But um, I was super surprised at how many people had recorded it for not just LibriVox, but for YouTube. And I thought, oh, it's because it's short, you know, it's a short story. It's very, you know, 12, 17 minutes, something like that. But then when I went on to ISFDB, um, I typed in Sarnath to see if I could get other things with Sarnath. But more importantly, I think like there's tons and tons of responses to this story and especially like relatively recently. Um, in the same way that you get tons and tons of responses to the cold equations. So here are some of the stories that have the same opening. Now you can say, oh, well, that doesn't mean anything, Jesse, because it's just a title. They're not responding. But listen, some of them are clearly <laughs> the doom that came to Devil's Reef, the doom that came to Dunwich, the doom that came to Hamletville. Hmm, maybe not. The doom that came to Innsmouth. Okay. <laughs> the doom that came to Necropolis. The doom that came to New Sarnath, the doom that came to Providence, <laughs> the doom that came to the sea base delta, the doom that came to Smallmouth, uh, the doom that came to Whitby Town, the doom that came to Xanthus, the doom that, you know, it just goes on and on and on. Um, and then I, I remembered there was a relatively recent Batman, you know, miniseries or something called The Doom That Came to Arkham. Uh, or, yeah, it must yeah. have been Arkham. Oh, yeah, it was Gotham. It was. It was Gotham. Right, right. Arkham Asylum. Um, Batman is intertwined with, with Lovecraft, which is very odd. Um, <laughs> but the, the thing is, is this is not the story that people think of when, you know, the mainstream thinks of, uh, Lovecraft. Lovecraft. They think, you know, I guess Shadow of Innsmouth. They think, uh, Call of Cthulhu, maybe. Maybe, Maybe color Dagon. Out of space. Color out of space is very pop, very popular as a everybody's favorite. That's not my favorite at all. Um, this is not my favorite of the Dreamland stories, but I really like it. I I I'm compelled to read it every once in a while. And this beautiful adaptation, um, Jason does, which I think does some amazing interpretation and guesswork and such. Um, I agree with you. The the, the art that he has depicting that is really nice, really uh, evocative, um, and it's a pleasure to look through what he has made of it. And he's making, he's ma he's like in dialogue with, with Lovecraft, I think, um, in that oh. he's interpreting it the way he wants to interpret it, which I, I'm like all, all there with him. But one of the things that I thought of when I was just, I had my mom reread it to me earlier today, um, I was thinking, you know, there's this thing where it's the title, the doom that came to Sarnath. Why is it, why is it not the doom that came to Ib? Because Ib gets doomed too. Well, that's that's the kind of the where you want to read Lovecraft's politics into it a little bit, right? Indeed. Yeah, human beings. It's the are, civilization of the that is doomed. Ib is Ib is civilization. I mean, it's sort of described. As, it is I mean, sort of a culture, but. They have it's, fire. It's the other. They're they're it's a city. they're established first. They're the other. They are. There's also them. there's not a like there's a prophecy that Sarnath is gonna be doomed. Like mm -hmm. there's the sigil or the the runes of doom written. Um, 
And if it doesn't, I don't think has any of that kind of stuff. It's just horrible people decide to slaughter everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, it is destroyed, but it's not weird, right? Like a bunch of yeah. guys spears show up and kill everyone. It's fairly normal. I think it that's one of the most mm-hmm. interesting things about this story to me, because most of the time when uh, Lovecraft talks about other peoples and cultures, he talks about how awful and corrupt they are. Here, they just look different. And they're weak and vulnerable and jelly-like. And, you know, that's enough for the men of Sarnath to go and massacre them all. Um, And I just think it's interesting because usually Lovecraft uh, is really down on (laughs) non-white Aryan-type races. Um, And here, you know, these these Ibanians were not doing anything... uh, to deserve their fate. Um, they weren't doing, well, okay. They were doing horrible dances under the gibbous moon. <laughs> that's, but, that's, I mean, that's the note I made. Had to go watch that. <laughs> that, that was the note I made is, is they're horrible dancers. <laughs> yeah. I've read that very literally. Like they just can't dance very well. So they deserve genocide clearly because they <laughs> dance so badly. Um, <laughs> Oh, yeah. There's a part of Lovecraft's politi- historical politics or vision of history that this story gets at, I think, better than maybe any other story, with maybe a few exceptions. But this is probably just the best, is that it's, it's not just this outside force that's going to come in and wipe you out, which sort of happens here. But it's the decadence. It's that culture to get decadent. So one thing I wanted to ask Jason about, uh, about his comic is – I w- when I was reading it, I'm wondering, is he going to go industrial with this culture? Mm. And he, there's hints of it. There's like the smokestacks mm-hmm. in a couple of the yeah. frames. And that's yeah. on a new but, page, which, which you know, it's like, oh, this is time past. Yeah, time but I, w- right. I, I was wondering, is he going to go even farther and make this like a fully industrial or even post-industrial it's, they culture? They got balloons, bud. Which, <laughs> yeah, which is kind of on Lovecraft's mind. But the other story, what's the one I'm thinking about? He mm-hmm. has the same idea that like – it's not just that the foreign hordes are going to come in and defile our, our culture. It's our cultures become decadent over time as well. It's, it's, it's even though he, he has this obsession with like established stable civilizations, you know, and that's a lot in his debate with Howard mm-hmm. barbarism versus civilization. At the same time, he does see civilizations as falling into decadence. And that's what he thought America was doing at, at the time. Right. Materialism. Is the word he always thrown out in his letters. So even though this was written pretty early in his career, it has that that idea. It's, but it's, it's that's actually in a lot of historical grand historical theories of the time. Um, Toynbee has a little bit of this this idea that cultures rise and then they get decadent and they fall. Uh, so although I, I, yeah, I felt like um, the reason they fell was this kind of uh karma coming around because of the horrible things mm-hmm. they'd done before mm-hmm. they'd become decadent yeah like right. very very early on but i do agree like they're like the laziness of the priests like the priests are first like man we shouldn't be celebrating this uh destruction of this other culture mm-hmm. no it it's sort not of that isn't no, right they thought it was dangerous they, it's not that the, it was it was it was like uh they were like worried. <laughs> it was like there's a there might be an issue here, right? Whereas yeah, you're you're oh, poking the lizard demon with a stick when you yeah. celebrate <laughs> the downfall of him. 
Don't poke the lizard demon. He's not a demon. <laughs> He's a god. His name is Boxer. Sorry, Don't sorry. other him. <laughs> Apologies. He lives on the moon. God. Um, uh, I, 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 I love Jason's adaptation. Um, I, I am so sympathetic to the salamander people, the Ibians. I thought, I thought, I was surprised because when I first read it, I always pictured the Ibians. Um, as being kind of horrible, mm-hmm. right? Like they're more like. Oh, that's what ones. it says. Just, it says they're ugly yeah. beyond comprehension. Yeah, uh, and Jason to me slightly like the uh, the Innsmouth look with the bulging mm. eyes and greenish cast to the skin and all. Sorry, I interrupted. Go on. Yeah, I, I think that's how I always imagine them too. Sort of like deep ones yeah. in a way. Jason Thompson's adaptation, though his interpretation, they are adorable. They're yes. so cute. And they got little babies. Um, and you immediately feel really, really sympathetic towards them. They, uh, I want to point out that it's, it's really it, it just seeing – like what I love is he, he, almost none of the text is his own. It's a, just adaptation, right? So he takes the text and he cuts out some of it and he keeps most of it or feels like most of it. Um, he shows you things. But the, the opening scene, the first panel, we see the lake. And then we see the mountains, and then we see all these islands, and it's just a calm lake with no living animals, right? There is in the land of Minar a vast still lake that is fed by no stream and out of which no stream flows. uh, It got me to think about how there's a lot of stories like this uh, in Lovecraft, and and I was thinking a lot about how his relationship to nature is actually not as strong as it could be, given how much he spends, has characters in nature, you know, Dunwich Horror and... Many stories are set in, you know, the forest. He likes walks in the woods and stuff. But um, the majority of the text in describing Sarnath is about architecture, which we know he's in love mm-hmm. with. Um, mm-hmm. The laying out of the city and uh, the beautiful kinds of rocks that the city has made out of uh, all the imported goods that are all luxuries. And, you know, he was a city guy and he liked cities. Nothing he liked more than populating cities. But... Uh, we can't read it. It's so weird that it was in a Scottish magazine. Like it was about Scotland. This is not like, uh, if you stretch it, I can understand why the moon bog is an, <laughs> a story written for St. Patrick's Day because it's set in Ireland. Okay. But they both have lakes with secrets in them, right? Um, and if you uh, do the wrong thing, and they both have the moon in it, right? You do the wrong thing, um, something bad will happen. And some bad dip happens in both. And uh, I was reading another uh, Lovecraft pastiche, um, or in the style of Lovecraft, and uh, I was telling my, my mom, or she was reading to me, the the translation of that 1958 French um, Lovecraft story in the style of Lovecraft. Anyways, um, I was saying he, he's whoever's writing this is doing the technique that Lovecraft loves, which is rumor, 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 rumor. The, all the rumors are true. <laughs> right? The vernacular knowledge of the people, all of it can be believed. Right. So anything that's mentioned in here is like some people said that's true. <laughs> you just read it as true. Um, the the natural world does not show you that. When we look up at the moon, what we see is is all the scars. It doesn't mm-hmm. have any... They're not even scars. All the wounds, right? Mm-hmm. On Earth, there's virtually no 
open wounds. You know, they happen. Uh, there was a big explosion in the South Pacific recently. Um, and, you know, there's some growth damage on some of these islands or whatever. I'm sure people were damaged too. But that will soon be healed and it'll be covered over in layers and layers of growth. Um, so we're looking at this terrain and there's no city there. And then we see the bird and it's sitting on eggs. Beautiful little bird. Then we see this um, uh, swamp god <laughs> swimming through the swamp. He's an alligator, crocodile, alligator, that nose, right? It's flat nose. He's a gator. Anyways, uh, and then the next image is some lily pads, which look a little bit like faces, little Pac-Man, right? And then we see some birds, and then we see an overhead shot of the same lake. Next page, we see the city of Ib. And it doesn't look like our cities, although they they seem to have a civilization, right? And then we see the citizens of Ib, who are now populating this place. And they are going about their business with baskets and carrying their babies in their baskets. And the toddlers are wandering around. Then they go out looking for the birds. And they get the eggs. And they bring the bird back to Bokrug. And then you see uh, Jason is, like, he's just, like, so smart. Like, if you see those bottom three panels, the first one is the two birds flying away and this this um, uh, Ibian coming with a little round canoe, right? And then the next image, they're holding up uh, that bird to their god. Mm-hmm. The moon is in the sky. And then the next image, it's a baby dying. They're not eating their baby. This is like a ceremony to burn their baby because the baby, baby died. So this is like a an overall image of what happens in the story. Just this the arrival, the uh celebration, mm-hmm. and then death. Yeah, what it looks like is that they are pushing the baby, the dead baby, out into the water in a coracle and setting the coracle on fire. Indeed. So it's like a va- Viking funeral for Indeed. The and and the thing is is this is this is all natural. And then the next image is the arrival of man, right? And what do they do? They do what the Ibians did a minute ago, right? But they do it on a larger scale. And it's horrible. Just like killing the duck would be horrible if said, hey, or here's a goose. <laughs> Please kill it and pluck it so we can have it for dinner. You're not used to that, probably. Maybe Connor grew up on a farm. Maybe he said, yeah, no problem. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe Connor's like, oh, see, see those animals that we're having for, for dinner. And he, Connor accidentally sees one of my dogs. <laughs> and he says, yep. what? Oh, sorry. <laughs> I, you know, I grew up on a farm. <laughs> yep. I don't recognize these animals. <laughs> All I know is kangaroos. <laughs> <laughs> we don't, we don't oh, have dogs Lord. in Australia. <laughs> Wallabies. Are, yeah. Well, there's some I really cute. Called dingoes. <laughs> yeah, dingoes. Oh, that's true. Okay, yeah, I, I was wrong. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> I, I just think that's really interesting. So, I don't think there's like a, a the judgment on these Ibians being disgusting is like some sort of leftover. Uh, but. Uh, the humans are certainly more disgusting in this, and eventually they become disgusting. And then Jason's interpretation is they literally become that which they ate, right? At the end, 
they you know, we see where the fish came from and the fowl came from. Yeah, I loved him spending a whole page on that with the you know it's only a line of text uh, in Lovecraft, but mm-hmm. Jason spends a whole page showing you, hey, you know these fish that you love to eat, they are swimming in the waters and eating of whatever grows on what the bones you th- of the people you, you threw massacred. them in there. You massacred them, and every yeah. year you celebrate. This is this is not a shouldn't be. In a Scottish, you know, thing, it should be like a Thanksgiving story for Americans or something. It's about (laughs) the Indians, right? Stealing their land, Mm. saying, this is mine. And then, you know, parading around in their headdresses. Do we know that it's actually a Scottish magazine and not just a magazine founded by some guy named I John think, Scott or something? I think the, I think the subtitle. Scottish amateur magazine in the Wikipedia. Yeah, Wikipedia just says it was first published in The Scott, a Scottish amateur fiction magazine. But, you know, for all that means is someone made five carbon copies of, yes, it was of whatever pro- they typed It was probably – uh, amateur journalism was huge. It was a blog, basically. Mm-hmm. Some guy has a blog called The Scott. <laughs> says Lovecraft, can you write me one? And he's like, John, no problem. <laughs> <laughs> um, what do you, uh, on that page, it's I marked it as fourteen. Um, this is all online for people who are not on the podcast with us. This is on Jason Thompson's website. It's mockman.com. It's an it's an old blog post. You'll um, have it in your show notes, right? Yeah, I'll I'll link to it, of course. Um, on the bottom of that page where we see the human hands covered in gold rings, right, tearing a fish apart and putting the mm-hmm. flesh into their into their gorges, right? And they're all doing so – I mean, it's all really weird the way we deal with our we're, – we're just basically a big tube <laughs> with, a, <laughs> with teeth on one end and a pooper on the other. And, and the arms and legs just provide mo- locomotion to put things in that tube, right? So this is – Part of what the problem is. And then we see the fish swimming in the lake near the city of Sarnath. And as we go down, we see the bones at the bottom. And then we cut to the party inside the mouth, looking out. (laughs) Oh, it's it's profound, right? And then we look back at the bones and we look into what looks like a gullet going down. And, oh, look at Mm -hmm. that. Look at the bottom of the gullet. There's more bones. And then we look into the reeds of the swamp again and inside in the seed of those bones grows the symbol that's on Bokrog, right? That's Bokrog is holding. None of this is literally in the text, right? This is all Jason's interpretation. And it's like, it's exactly right. This is exactly, it's a symbolic showing of the seeds of the destruction, blah, blah, blah. But, um, the relationship with the moon and going up every, you know, uh, uh, this is a thousand years later. What could they have done better? What should what should they have done better to have avoided their doom? The problem uh, is is not th- murdering all the people. <laughs> yeah, but the, you didn't do that. This is a thousand years later. You know, f- uh, fifty generations, right? Yeah, I was. Well, if you put it next lot- to like a story like Polaris, Jesse, then the mm. answer is you know don't sleep. Stay vigilant, right? right? Not have so many parties. Uh huh. Invest more heavily in your military. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. I, yeah. Mean, well, I think Polaris was written right around the same time. Yeah, it's a very early story as well. I don't know where that oh. one was published. Not an Eskimo fiction, that's for sure. 
But yeah, that's you, you sleep and then the hordes will take over your city. I was thinking about reparations in terms of this story, um, because, mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know, the the people whom upon whom the doom eventually falls are not the people who did the massacre, but they have been living in the city that prospered with the elimination yeah. of Ib mm-hmm. um, and further mocking them and stuff. Um, and so I was, I was thinking about, you know, people nowadays in America saying, well, you know, I never had a slave. Um, why mm-hmm. should, why should there be scholarships to help even the, uh, the, the, the ground for um, disadvantaged uh, people? Um, <clears throat> I was thinking of my own city, my hometown of Wilmington, North Carolina, where uh, up until 1898, the population was majority black, and after the Civil War, there was a, um, a uh, th- there were whites and blacks in the city council, and um, <clears throat> uh, there was a violent coup, uh, and people were hanged and driven into the marshes, and Wilmington became like 10% black. And it, I would have grown in a, up in a very, very different town if, you know, the, quote, Black Wall Street had been had allowed to continue to flourish and prosper. And, uh, you know, there are stories like that across eastern North Carolina, although not, not usually so violent, but, you know, other places where areas were firebombed. So, you know, uh, these were, <laughs> to me, um, you know, this, this is... This is this is myth and just a story that Lovecraft made up, but there are absolutely many, many uh, parallels with real life of, you know, people uh, just a few generations. You know, peop- I grew up with people who would have been alive at that point in time. So, um, no, I agree. It, it, I mean, one of the things I was thinking about, I, I was asking, like, I'm thinking, oh, you know, uh, there's a point. Uh, I think it's in Mr. Jim Moon's uh, show, which I directed you all to for the narration. Um, he uh, he mentions that Sarnath was a real place uh, in India, uh, mm-hmm. a, a place that doesn't exist anymore. But um, I, and I found the you know maps of it and stuff in old magazines. Um, Mr. Jim Moon supposes that. Uh, Lovecraft forgot that he had read about that name and he just thought he made it up on his own. And I was thinking, well, there's another explanation, which is this is a true story. <laughs> and then, of course, you y'all think uh, Jesse's crazy, right? Because um, Ilarnek and <laughs> Kadatharon and and the Ibians and the moon and Buckrug are all fake. Um, I think the moon might be real. Uh, yeah, well, some people think it's made of green cheese, you know. <laughs> Opinions vary. <laughs> I've heard it both ways. <laughs> um, I mean, some people think the Earth is flat and the moon must be a disk. Uh, the phases thing, uh, we can account for that in some ways. The important part is um, nobody has an expectation, I think, when they're reading it, that Sarnath is a real place. The fact that it happened to be a real place uh, or have the same name as a real place um, doesn't seem to affect like the fact that it, it was – Turns out to have been named after a real place or whatever doesn't seem to affect. It's not the, really important to the story. Well, that's what we so, think, right? So slightly relevant side story. Um, well, that's Brandon what we, Sanderson's first mm. novel. 
he wrote a whole book and he called it Adonis and he had people read it and they were reading it like, it's cool. I don't get why, why'd you call it Adonis? Like, it, it, that's just what it's called. It's the name of the city. It's like, yeah, but why is it called Adonis? Mm-hmm. Like, well, it's, that's the name. That's why the book is named Adonis because the city's named Adonis. And that's where it takes place. And it took him weeks of having people read this where someone finally mentioned that Adonis was a mythical character who's mm-hmm. known and has certain characteristics. And he's like, oh, I just thought it sounded cool. I didn't. Yeah. <laughs> and he renamed See? that book Elantris. Yeah. Oh. Sort of went on. But he, he actually wrote the whole book and yeah. had people reading drafts of it before he realized that Adonis was a thing that he yeah. had. Uh, hence my not uh, reading that book. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I, do you remember a while ago, there was a, probably pre-Squeak or I don't know. It was a while ago. There was a hot, hot book for a minute uh, called Aragon. And it turned oh, into yeah. a movie too, right? And, yep. and, the and, dragon and, book. Yeah, yeah, the kid wrote it. Yeah, yeah a kid oh, wrote yep. it. Yep, yep. But the important part that. was he got real. he got real clever because instead of the letter D... For dragon, it's E, the next letter in the alphabet. I'm like, okay, that's the idea, <laughs> right? Aragon, <laughs> okay. Um, so the thing is, is Lovecraft had read a lot of books and he had read a lot of history and was really, really mm-hmm. into history. Um, so th- this is actually a very, very biblical story. Like it, the setting is, you know, long time ago in a place like uh, Babylon, right? Um, the fact that it's set in uh, the dreamlands now, we think. And I saw one guy on YouTube who I watched a lot of videos of. He was saying that this is a Cthulhu mythos story, um, as well as being sort of a dreamland story. And I'm like, mm, yeah, I I think the best way to look at these stories is to look at them as individual pieces of art rather than to say, you know, maybe this is in his cubism or his squeak or uh, uh, – <laughs> section of his career but each piece of art can stand on its own generally um i think if, if you know we're looking at the serial of um of uh reanimator okay maybe not <laughs> but even those are written with uh synopses right in this case um if we just look at it as what the story tells us it is we've got uh, a long time ago the narrator says um, this is how we know this. The, the, we see it on the stone cylinders of Kadatheron, right? That's how we know this. And then later on, he says it's written in the papyrus of Il Arnek, right? So this is some scholar putting it together, right? In the same way that, um, a lot of H.P. Lovecraft stories are. They're just, uh, call it Cthulhu, right? Is somebody who had put this story together and saying, look, this is the story of Sarnath. Um, and uh, how it came to be doomed, right? And any sort of legendary story like that, in, there's no characters in here. It's all about the city, right? So, yeah, we get a priest named, and there's, like, another guy named, but they're not really characters. The important part is that there was this period of time, and these people did this, and they moved over there, and this is, like, the story of a history of a people, like the history of the Jews, you know, going from Egypt to the promised land and, you know, and then getting in trouble with the Romans and stuff like that, <laughs> Babylonians and all those things, right? It's a story of that kind. And so when we look at the Bible, most people uh, have different ideas of what it's about. Some people take it as literally true, uh, you know, and some people think of it as like 
um, a myth cycle for a history of a people or whatever. Some people want to make that manifest and move to that place and go on a pilgrimage. There's all sorts of ways of reading it. But we know that this is not a real place in a certain sense. So why is this one less true than the others? Because it's not older. I was thinking, like, what is the truth that it's trying to tell us? And I think when Jason does this thing where he turns them literally into the thing that they killed, that is probably not what Lovecraft was picturing in his mind because he's more focused on what the architecture looks like and the kind of <laughs> stones and stuff. Um, but Bokrug is there as a kind of servant to a force that is uh, – Real. The other gods in this story, which are mentioned, they all have names, and they're uh, they have priests who live in the highest building, right? Um, eventually, they get soft, <laughs> and they stop like thinking that the kings are doing wrong things by promoting this festival that everybody likes to go to. Literally, they have a uh, uh, there's a um, it's not a turkey, it's a it's in the story. What's uh, the bird with the big feathers? Put peacock, right? They have a peacock for dinner. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's served out like a like a traditional looking turkey. Um, this is about, in some way, it's the the cycle of all civilization going and conquering neighbors and killing them. So in that sense, it's it's just as true about humans as any of the stories in the Bible, except maybe those places were real. Except now we've got this Sarnath places. Like what what we end up having to say is stuff like well. It's a coincidence or it's, it's, um, it's like, it's the same thing with like Batman, right? <laughs> Batman lives in Arkham near our Gotham nearby is Arkham Asylum. Um, but if you start digging into Batman stories, there's like, oh yeah, this is ripped off from that. And, and so what becomes true, I think the only important part is, is whether, it's saying something true or not, rather than the details about it when we're reading a fiction story like this. So that's what I think. It's very is, Jordan Peterson of you, Jesse. Oh, well, now I'm going to get canceled now. I think, I think he's out. <laughs> In any case, what I'm thinking, this is kind of why this story probably resonates with people. Like Dagon's a fun story because it has that ending, right? It's cool. It's, it's fun. But this one is way more like, um, uh, it doesn't tell you. We know what it's saying, but it doesn't tell you. Whereas that one, it's like, it, maybe it was, maybe he's crazy. <laughs> maybe he's, he's high on drugs, right? It tells you sort of like the ending tells you. But this one, it just, it doesn't do what Jason did, right? It doesn't have, uh, we know it's something like what Jason said it as, but I think, you know, he's done it better than I would have thought of it on my own. Or at least he captured it the way I think I would want to have captured it. But it, it's so interesting as a story because, like, even in with Polaris, there's a character there. There's a guy who's dreaming, and he uh, he feels bad that he couldn't help out because he fell asleep, right? What about the, uh, that one's much more based on a dream, whereas this one is more like um, based on a historical. It's like a dream of a historical event, or. A, mm. Something like a whole chapter in in the Old Testament is what I'm thinking. It does it does like feel that way. I hadn't thought of that until you brought it up. Um, but it also is mixed with uh, 
this sort of dreamland style. I was going to ask, did anybody read Idle Days on the Yarn oh, by Lord Dunsany? Because mm-hmm. um, I, I saw that this was partially, I mean, if it's not, I don't think it's based on it at all, but it's more like this style is, this story is sort of written in the style of Dunsany. It's um, very Dunsanian for sure. Um, but uh, didn't he write some of his Dreamland stories prior to that 1919 um, uh uh, I guess it wasn't 1919 was when he, he saw Dunsany, but I thought I'd heard that he had read some, or uh, read some Dunsany after he wrote his first Dreamlands. I think uh, that's possible. It's like, it really not- resonated with him. Dunsany's Dreamland stories, like Idle Days in the End is the most famous. Well, Polaris was written in, in 1918. Yeah. So I don't know what the chronology is, but it either really resonated with him because it was what, it was on his wavelength. Or he's like, yeah, this is my guy, and uh, I can I can add something to this conversation. It is quite different though, because I, I don't think that I don't think that uh, Dunsany has an axe to grind with his stories like that. I read them, and I, they're much more amusing than or it, dreamlike. Um, but they're they don't have axes to grind like Lovecraft usually has something he's trying to say. Yeah, at least the idle idle days on the yarn is um sort of feels more like it's a nice comfy story that you can read, and mm-hmm. it does it is trying to provoke a sense of wonder mm-hmm. of this. It's it's almost like a a travel story that's set in a dream. Um, and he he has a couple like Ex Oblivione has exactly uh the you know you're on a on a barge going on into the underworld is like the exact same. And there's another one, like the white ship has some stuff that's directly like very obviously like idle days on the end and other wonder book of wonder stories, uh, which were not mm. in the book originally. Um, mostly in, I want to say the idler, um, are, they're all, there's an, they're usually, po- it's not in the books later on, but, um, the original publications, there was an image opposite the text. And I don't know that, I do not know that Sidney Syme didn't draw the image first and that, uh, um, Dunsany wrote it to match the image because they work together can, like, consistently. And, hmm. and we don't see that. Like, if you, if you look at the book, uh, later on collection, of Idle Days, uh, not Idle Days in the end, the Book of Wonder. And then there's the second Book of Wonder or something. Um, which they were serialized, serialized or every month there's a new, new story and it would have an image on one page and the story on the other. Um, it might be that he drew the picture, uh, Syme drew the picture and then, um, uh, Dunsany wrote the picture as a story and, it, Mm. But the stories work on their own and the pictures kind of work on their own. But looking at a picture and telling a story out of it is a lot harder than getting a picture from a story in a certain sense because we're not used to reading things that way. We read, especially us today, we as humans mostly read um, <laughs> our our stories. I, I'm talking about the humans here. But there's others who only watch their stories on like movies or maybe the screen for people who watch movies while reading the book. I don't know. But the thing is, is it used to be before most people are illiterate, right? That 
the church would have a bunch of images up and they would tell the stories of these things mm-hmm. and then noticing mm-hmm. the details of where the hand is and where the eyes are going and what what things are on their clothing would all tell stories and so like i i practice this a lot with my students there's a i get an image and then i i tell the story of the image i maybe i sent this to you the one of these to you recently it was like um there was, uh, I think it was like from Puss in Boots, just an image somebody had done of the story of Puss in Boots. And we have like the boy and the cat has its paws on him. And then you see the mill in the background. And we know how Puss in Boots goes generally. It's, you know, there's this cat and it teaches him how to do capitalism or something, right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I didn't, I didn't go to that. I just looked at what's in the image and then I, well, what are they talking about? What are they, where's the boy looking? And, and if you start doing that, which is what I think why Jason's so extraordinary is he's just looking at the text and then he turns it into that which is implicit. But, you know, this whole opening page of setting up the marsh and the lives that are going on there and then zooming out. And seeing it again, it's like uh, it's a way of uh, pre-programming us for his his own conclusion as to what's happening here. It's brilliant. It's something you, you don't normally see. It comes from mm. some place of love, I think, <laughs> as opposed to "Hey, I'm going to make some money." <laughs> oh, what, <laughs> hey, what are other people doing? <laughs> um, there seems to be. Uh, uh, it's like he's he's really grokked it somehow. It's yeah, probably, his interpretation of the doom was quite interesting. It wasn't um, it wasn't what you expected if you read the story before, right? It you no, know, it was not. Um, but it also makes me want to ask: What did other people? What was other people's interpretation of the doom? Did anyone have a particular idea when they read it about what was happening to the city? Evan, you you read this uh, for your podcast before, right? Yeah, I did. Um, I didn't go back and listen to that. I didn't have time, but um, I could have made time. But rather, I'd just ask you, what 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 did um, you think about it? It's not really connected to the. Well, I, I saw it as kind Atlantic of Atlantic trade. Waters or retaking waters, like this. The waters retaking the city. Hmm. That's kind of how I, I always saw it. But that's, I think that's, I, maybe I was reading that into other Lovecraft stuff, where, mm. where the waters, metaphoric or real, are are a, some kind of threat to established civilizations. So, yeah, but I, yeah, I kind of saw it more as 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 karma for a, a decadent civilization. The, the details of of how this fall happened. I mean, it's it's kind of I don't know. It could also be sort of somewhat myth because later people of Menar just see the destroyed city or the city, nothing left except the idol, right? And mm-hmm. they take it and make it one of their own gods at that point, you know. And then they just they can imagine what they want to happen to it. Uh, what, what, what but you, it's, it could almost be an ecological thing. What would you point. think about it being like the British? They they just say, "Hey, we're the shit." And then they 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 say, hey, you know the Romans? They were kind of like us. They were the shit. And then they take their architecture and start making it Roman, you know. And the America, you know, if you've been to DC, <laughs> it's like 
Uh, Greek and Roman architecture. Let's do that. Hey, what happened to those guys? Um, let's not focus on that. <laughs> well, if that's what the people of Menara are doing, it's it's rather interesting because what remains of the people of Sarnath is this Bakrub idol, which mm-hmm. they then take and worship. They're actually worshiping the the Ibish culture. Then they're carrying on the Ibish culture, not the Sarnath culture. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, but I think that kind of uh, thing happens in history sometimes, like absolutely. how Gothic cathedrals are actually Islamic in, in influence. And then, you know, in the, when the Victorians revived the Gothic, they probably think they're reviving the European tropes, but they're actually reviving Islamic <laughs> things. Yeah, <laughs> it's like, um, uh, did you know that alcohol is illegal in Saudi Arabia? <laughs> what? Those people are heathens. They don't know nothing. <laughs> <laughs> well, wait a second. Did you know that alcohol is named after an Arabic word? Oh, no, I didn't know that. <laughs> There's this kind of transference that happens when you're far enough away in time. And I think that's what this story is largely about, is the far enough away in time thing. Is that at the beginning, the priests, I, I thought it was really interesting. The priests are like, well, uh, we should be worried about this. But as time went on, they're like, ah, I don't need to worry about this. And they they start pr- drinking the same Kool Aid as the other people who are just partying because it's it's the time of year when we celebrate the deaths of uh, those peoples. What were you going to say, Alex? They joined in the orgies. It, it, it's definitely visualized that way right here, and I think it is visualized That's what's in the text. It's in the text, yes. <laughs> the priests joined in the orgies. Uh, is it is the word orgy used? Oh, yeah. I think it is. <laughs> yeah. So um, that's not kissing, uh, Evan. It, it, it can include that, but it's it's a party, right? It still counts. <laughs> this is the kissing story. Definitely. Well, the kissing has to happen at some point for the uh, Sardanathes to uh, make more Sardanathians. Yeah, I guess that's that's gets to maybe my criticism of the story a little bit is is I think he's too hard on the decadence in a way. I think it's it's Lovecraft's got that weird moralism. He does. Uh, he's worried We're, about alcohol. He's worried about um, fish. Fish. <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, I mean, that's that's a historic culture for you. It seems rather unfair that the sins of the fathers should be visited upon the sons. Uh, to the seventh generation, you know, if a G Bible that that seems awfully harsh. Um, but I mean, <laughs> it's it's a pretty common uh, uh, reaction across cultures that um, not just not just the perpetrators, but their families will will suffer. And you know, certainly society has enforced that on people that it has seen as malefactors. Well, when the whole culture's major annual celebration is the murder of a whole other city, <laughs> mm-hmm. there are not a lot of completely innocent people at that point. Everyone's right involved in some way. Uh, right. I, I was oh. gonna. If Jason had been here, I would have asked him about the dog. Um, <laughs> there's a dog that shows up um, uh, when the humans show up, and I think during the slaughter, there's a whole full page slaughter scene where you know babies are having their yeah, oh, it's not full page. Their brains dashed out. Yeah, bra- yes. babies being thrown, you know, crying. A guy is, has him on the point of his spear and is grinning widely, yeah. And there's like it's one a pretty... holding its 
being held by its parent in the center, just beside the guy holding the rock. Like, and then there's another guy coming at him with a big smile and a knife. It's like, this is, this is what Lovecraft was saying happened, but he doesn't make it real. Whereas Jason Thompson's like, these are really bad guys. (laughs) This is what it looks like, guys. And then we see the splashing. And then something that's, again, not mentioned in the story explicitly, but of course would have happened. They're literally shitting on them and peeing on them, right? Yeah, yeah I saw it, noticed that. Yeah. Yep. And they're smiling and laughing and they're pulling down their temples. And, and they take, oh, look at this gold statue. Let's take this. And then the priest is like, warning, <laughs> warning. <laughs> Um, and uh, Jason's gone the extra step and given the the four fingered handprint, right? Is that Bokrug's handprint? Handprint, or is it is it uh, sorry, uh, the Ibians come back? Um, that's uh, wholly undercooked. But then on the next double page spread, which I've got labeled as page six, we see a dog um, in the fields outside of Sarnath as it's waxing mightily and it's in front of a little skull. And then later on um, at the feast, you know, all the things they eat, right? They eat all sorts of imported specialties. Um, uh, One of them looks like a dog's head. See if I can find that. What page that's on. Um, I thought that might supposed to be a goat's head. It could be. Yeah. Um, Young goats 13. from the distant hills of Implan. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, in the center, there's a look what might be a sheep's head, right? But then we get the fish. The fish is the focus. We get the right. b- birds. We got the ducks at the beginning or whatever they are. And then we get the the um, the uh, peacock, right? But the fish and Eric, Eric Rabkin, he talks a lot about food in science fiction you think what the hell is this guy talking about but he's he's right it is totally in there one of hg wells's books um is called the food of the gods uh you guys know this book with the giant chickens yeah giant chickens um uh, some scientist develops a tech that allows him to uh make uh farm animals bigger physically larger so you can get giant cows and more meat right this is uh, a thinly veiled sort of uh thing that actual <laughs> companies biotech companies are doing right they make our chickens bigger they make our our uh wheat bigger they make everything bigger um and of course aren't the turkeys so big now that they can't breed naturally yeah there's there's uh, yeah there's all sorts Sorry. of uh you know Genetic engineering, but also just like selective breeding to make things important in that, in that novel. Um, the boy of the scientist, the scientist boy accidentally, uh, I think gets, eats it or something, or maybe he eats one of the chickens that's been recently doused and he becomes, he grows up to be big. Um, and, uh, it's kind of interesting, but, uh, if you look at this not as a science fiction story, which I do not think this story is, um, it's a fish and it's the fish that are swimming in the lake that they're eating out of. That's the Jesus symbol, right? Uh, I don't want to make too much about this being a Christian allegory, but it is the absence of a Christian allegory. That whole first half of the Bible is, uh, pre-Christian, uh, 
it is about, you know, the wrath of God. Whereas Jesus is like, we got a way out of this, guys. We don't have to be doomed. And uh, it's like we have to reform and you have to make a sacrifice of yourself rather than to go and sacrifice other people and then celebrate their – it is very um, interesting because Lovecraft's not Christian at all, right? He 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 thinks religion's important for people, <laughs> but he doesn't believe in it at all. Um, but he's aware of it. And this is – it is much more like this is uh, First Test, uh, Old Testament sort of story. And so that idea of the fish being um, the coelacanth and such, the, it's like – it doesn't say in the story that they're uh, – Jason's interpret them as um, – I think they're salamanders is what those gills on their necks look like, right? He, Lovecraft calls them strange ears. But their god is a reptile god, right? So whatever. A sea reptile or lake reptile, right? And then we've got these salamander-like things. But if if it's all about the fish – um, and you know, what you threw in that lake, it is, uh, kind of like an environmental story, but it's, it's much more like, um, the same old message, which is you got to listen to the rumors. <laughs> got it. All the rumors are mm. true. There, there's something, uh, somebody says, says something out in the world. It's true in a certain way, right? It's true in their heads. It's true to their group. It's true, uh, in a certain way. But it might not be literally true, right? So talking with Christians, you know, uh, some of them, they believe what whatever the Bible says, but they haven't read the Bible, you know? So they listen to the guy at the front who has says he's read it. Okay, have a good one. Um, yeah, sorry. I've been no, muted for a while. I no got to go, though. All right, have a good one. All right, I'll see you later. Thank okay, you. Bye. See you. So there might be something to... Uh, that sort of be seems to be a consistent message that I don't really understand why he does that other than it provides great atmosphere. But um, if all the rumors are always true, um, that's not usually true in our own experience, is it? So why is it true in his stories? What is he trying to say? Is uh, rumors like, like uh, the Jews control the banks or something like that. Right. Um, it, 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 why do people say that? Is it because it's true? Mm, probably not. Maybe it's it's what they believe because it serves their interests in some way, or maybe somebody's telling propaganda. But you have to try and find out the root of it. Otherwise, you won't know why that thing is happening or why you shouldn't believe it. Because anything presented to you before you, whether in your ears or through your eyes, seems to be something we default as true. Is why, you know, you see a, uh, a moth with a, a face pattern on it. We think, oh, that's a face. And then we have to say, oh, no, 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 that's a moth. Or you, or all the animals with the, you know, the pattern of a, uh, a bee or a snake that makes you think it's dangerous. And it turns out that it's the fake version of that. That truth, uh, a lie presented as the truth is the default for all of us. So when you hear a rumor, you're, you're, you have to re, react to it in a certain way. Animals don't have this problem. Only humans do. You hear a rumor. How do we react to it? What do you think? Uh, so um, I was going to say the uh, 
your idea about, okay, we've got um, some mim- mimicry in nature mm-hmm. that helps these animals survive. Um, and when it comes to rumors and so forth in human society, or, um, right, uh, whether it's true or not, I think if it helps you survive, then it get, kind of gets incorporated. Uh, like, okay, so you, let's just say you've got a, uh, a butterfly with a, um, I don't know, some sort of adaptive, actually, hmm. Let's say you have some mimicry where you've got an insect, it's adapting to look like another insect that is poisonous, right. but this insect actually is not. Well, um, from a human's perspective, you could, maybe you want to eat this insect, I don't right. know. Um, you could look at that and, and go, oh, it looks really dangerous. Don't touch that one. In fact, it's not. It's just mimicry. But oh. if you survive, uh, you still survived, right? Um, Right, for most, sorry. Yeah, so um, I guess what I was trying to sort of drive at is like whether a a rumor is true or not, it only has to be true some of the time um, for it to sort of propagate. Yeah, so Um, it it goes into the meme idea that these things propagate on their own uh, because – you know, we see a, like a funny GIF or something and we say, Oh, that's, that's appropriate. Now we don't say that's true, <laughs> but we think it in a certain sense, right? And we propagate it out. So if, if, if I had a, a, a die, a six sided die and I had a chart that tells me what the weather is outside and it's numbered one through six. And every time you walk by me and ask me what the weather's like outside, I roll the die and, Sometimes I'd be lying to you and sometimes it'd be correct. Uh, but Mm. I'm always, I'm always lying to you because I'm not consulting the window. I'm consulting the chart and the die. Um, but that's not how rumors spread. They're not random usually, right? It's, there's some sort of key truth there. So the example of the, of the animal that looks like another one. Uh, so one of the things, uh, think about like, dog psychology, right? Sometimes anger presents itself, but actually it's not anger, it's fear. And this is true in a lot of situations. I know in me, uh, frustration manifests as anger. Right? Mm -hmm. The anger drives away the frustration. (laughs) Oh, he's touchy about that subject. (laughs) Don't ask him about that. Right. So mm-hmm. it, it serves my, my function, but I don't recognize that it's frustration usually when I'm angry. But then thinking about it, I, oh, that was because I didn't have a clear piece of information. You wanted me to do something, but you weren't clear about what it was. I'm angry. <laughs> um, mm. well, the truth was I was frustrated. So in a dog, um, you come at a dog and it's, it looks snarling and angry at you. It's afraid of you. This is its way of saying, don't come near me. Right? So mm-hmm. there is there is something to this, like, presenting as something that it isn't. I, I, I know we're, we're kind of reading deeply on this, but maybe if Jason was here, he would be able to tell us what's going on more. But I'm, I'm just guessing it as what. Like, I think that, that uh, I've never seen that before, where you see a point of view. On, this is on page 14. From inside someone's mouth, looking at other people. Right? Mm. They're all drinking and laughing and eating at a party. You're looking at other people's mouths 
Why? Because there is another perspective. It isn't the a, an eyeball or a camera inside that mouth. It's the thing being eaten. And this is kind of why, like, so many intellectuals like Evan, who just left, <laughs> now we can talk <laughs> about him, are uh, uh, vegan or, in his case, a vegetarian. Right. It's because there's an uncomfortability with the knowledge that we're eating a thing that had feelings. Right. And so one way to respond to it is like swear off of it. Mm. So how can a story that is so simple, which is like one civilization killed another civilization, end of story, be so um, resonant? I, th- I like. I think this is a more resonant story than Dagon. Dagon's an interesting story. It's a fun story, but it's not resonant. I don't think. Mm. Well, I think partly it's resonant just because there have been a lot of civilizations that trampled all of over other peoples and then fell themselves. I mean, it, it's absolutely a thing that happens throughout mm-hmm. history. Um, I wanted to say briefly about the rumors things that you were talking about with uh, humans being the the only ones that follow rumors. That's not really true. I Please. mean, if a rabbit thumps, the other rabbits are going to run. They're not going to wait and find out what it was, what the original one was thumping about. Mm-hmm. And if if there's a stampede, the cows don't wander back to the back of the herd and find out what they're all running from. They just start running too. So I mean. That's that's in effect a repetition of a rumor that the animals, you know, mm. would would uh, participate in themselves. Well, is that a, a I, is that a rumor or a signal though? Because uh, uh, like like the boy who eh, cried wolf it's a is <laughs> the the boy who cried wolf is a story about rumors, right? Yeah. The, the boy's going around lying, and then what's the he he reaps what he sows or something like that. He, mm-hmm. he would say. Um, animals definitely 100% are communicating with each other a lot. And I think animals can be deceptive on purpose. Um, mm-hmm. Maybe it's not calculated, but it's certainly happening. Um, and so, you know, you, you can imagine a rabbit thumping so that it could get a carrot from another rabbit. <laughs> it's saying, I'm doing a fake thump and you're going to run away because you think there's a danger nearby. Um, but uh, is that a rumor? Or is it just information that's false? It's sort of well, it's um you could say like one function of rumors, right, is to warn people of danger. Right, um, right. I heard I heard that guy's a things. sexual predator. Let's not uh go hang out with him, right? Yeah. Um and like like I was saying, uh it sort of doesn't matter whether it's true or not, as long as you don't get killed. That's kind of the the main important thing, I suppose. Right. Um, We're hardwired to pay more attention to danger signals, and rumors of dangerous things would fall under that. But, yeah. uh, but of course, they, to, they lead you to other things, like the Russians are trying to <laughs> trying to interfere with our elections totally. and stuff like that. And, and then, totally. It, it can run amok. Yeah. Um, and and, they're, and, and it, it seems like it's about power of – being the like, what is the motive? You've met them, busybodies, right? People go up to their neighbors and say, "Did you hear what?" Right? They're trying to like be the center of attention. Well, we don't really understand it, right? Maybe we even do it, and we don't really understand what we do, what 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 they're doing, but we do know that it happens. So, 
what it what is the it's not for their survival, is it? Um it's a, that's a good question. Uh maybe yeah, not necessarily for survival, but for their benefit. Um but we we started discussing this though, Jesse, cuz you're saying in Lovecraft the rumors always turn out to be true. Mhm. I, I mean, um, story-wise, it makes sense. I, whenever I have a student, you know, put a character in the story that doesn't have, <laughs> doesn't come back or doesn't fulfill a function, why does this kid have a brother? Chekhov's gun. It's, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. All, they're all Chekhov's brothers and sisters, right? You have to have, the only reason you have a twin brother is so he can come back and stab you later, right? <laughs> it's not because he just happens to have a brother. I rolled a die because that's just bad writing. So in real life, rumors are not always true. In Lovecraft, they're always true. <laughs> and yeah, well, they, they sort of got to be. For they the, have like to other, be. It's, it's, a, it's a bit of confirmation bias. Because like, if he wrote a story where there was a big rumor, like you said, if there was Chekhov gun and it didn't go off, it wouldn't be a popular story because yeah, it annoyed it people. It wouldn't resonate, <laughs> indeed. Um, but I think also, you know, it talks to... Uh, he does have this more, like, in his... Maybe his philosophy is more like there is much more in the universe than we are aware of right and we've got to kind of be on the lookout mm. for the, for the cosmic, little cosmic little, nature yeah the little details out there that somebody's whispering right because we're on that island of ignorance yes endless. yes um and it's yeah. about suppression always as well right you got to suppress this knowledge um in this case it doesn't seem as much so because the knowledge is more like here's just a bunch of facts that have nothing to do with you and me today, wherever we are. But mm-hmm. there was this place. But in the the, the knowledge must always be suppressed. And then, so I don't think that he's saying like we got to go around people to people and telling them not to read Einstein because that'll prevent us from going to other planets. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's not that. What I think is there is, he's saying is there is this tendency to go around doing that. And this is a phenomenon that happens again and again. Um, and he's not like arguing in favor of it. He's just arguing that it's, this is a phenomenon we need to pay attention to, which is pretty weird. I'm not sure he's really trying to tell us anything. I mean, maybe he just really liked thinking gloomy thoughts about civilizations that had fallen. So well, he's trying to understand. He's, he's definitely trying to understand reality, right? When he writes. Yeah. But uh, is he trying to tell us what to think? I don't really feel like that. I think he's just exploring an idea. Oh, exactly. It, exactly. It isn't. Yeah. You have to think like me uh, because when we come out of this story, what do we think? <laughs> we think, wow, don't celebrate. The massacres <laughs> that you did, because don't it might come colonize. Yeah, uh, don't don't steal buck rugs. <laughs> well, this, well, I mean, this the story, story is amazingly sympathetic to the weird frog creatures yes. for a Lovecraft yes. story. Yeah, yes, mm-hmm. yeah. for a Lovecraft yeah. story. That's what I was saying at the beginning. It's, it's unsympathetic um, towards the humans, is what mm-hmm. it really is, right? Right. Well, they don't really deserve sympathy now, do they? I guess. I guess. But the problem not with that from is the way that depicted uh, the not, problem not from the evidence excessive. that we've seen and presented in this but they story. were they grew up in a different culture than you and i trish to them eating sauces various sauces prepared by the finest chefs is the normal thing 
I love that I, they're casually dissolving pearls in wine. That was pretty odd. <laughs> yeah, it's I've the, heard the Cleopatra Romans story, doing know. that. Yeah, that kind of thing. Uh, people, Cleopatra won a bet. Though. People literally eat gold, right? They've been going to restaurants mm-hmm. where they eat gold. Yeah, gold foil-wrapped steaks. Right. Uh, it, now, when they say to themselves that they're cutting their gold <laughs> and placing it in their mouths – they sing, I'm definitely not decadent. This isn't decadence. They turn to their friend. This isn't decadence, is it? <laughs> I think they're not thinking about – they probably don't even know what the word decadence means. Like, I think they think they are thinking, I am so rich and I am relishing this richness. <laughs> you go into Donald Trump's oh, house and, and you say, boy, this place sure is, is decadent. You know, your gold <laughs> toilet bowls and gold – faucets and he says decadent that's a good name that's what i'm going to name my grandkid <laughs> it's like it just it doesn't register as a, as a thing right so obviously the sort of thinking on a higher level might be the if there is a message of the higher sweep of history it could be a, a focus on that sort of thing but i i do think it just his attention to like caring about all the chalcedony and the uh and uh, like it's it's on a grid system. This Sarnath, right? It's fifty streets this way and fifty streets that way. Um, it's like uh, God creating a world. God creating. He's like doing Sim City. You could literally make this on Sim City, right? Mm. If you guys remember mm-hmm. that game, um, you could make the grid and you can make the walls with the <laughs> with two chariots allowed to pass on <laughs> that double lane highway <laughs> yep. around the outside of your. Walled city, okay, <laughs> you can do that. Uh, we get such decadence. Yeah, we get the cubit highness of of the highest building, and it's it's a uh, it's the high priests, right? They're literally high. <laughs> They're the highest, mm. and they look down at the lake, and they 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 reflect on the moon and the stars and the planets, uh, which is yeah. is it's very um it's very rich. That's why I like it. Uh, maybe. Mm. Maybe it's too decadent. Maybe that's the problem. We should we should burn this story. Not allow people the, to read the, it. <laughs> just yeah, just read Scalzi or whoever the replacement for <laughs> Lovecraft is. I don't think they gave a replacement. Oh wait, no, wait, no, no. Who who's the who's the um guy who wrote the Lovecraft Country book? Matt Ruff or is that a different guy? Matt Ruff wrote Lovecraft Country, yes, which oh, okay. is an excellent book that anyone should be just interested read, in reading. Just read Matt Ruff. Don't read this because it's better writers. Uh, uh, other other better writers. Um, mm. I, lo- I love um, the balloons. I'm good with it. Uh, I, it's amazing. Sorry. Talk. Well, um, you, you were saying like what is exactly – Lovecraft trying to say with this with this story, right? Um, if I was going with, if I didn't know anything about like Lovecraft or anything, and I just read this story, um, it would be a, an anti-colonization story. Mm-hmm. I would say my interpretation of the Doom was: I think we get we get mist coming off the uh, lake, mm. this green mist, and we get something coming down from the moon. And mm-hmm. there's a connection Shadows. between Bokrog, yeah, Bokrog mm-hmm. and the moon. So Bokrog's, obviously his idol goes missing, um, which is kind of like where the prophecy of doom comes from. Mm-hmm. And then the idol comes back at the end. So it's like this idol is somehow, it's animated itself and gone mm-hmm. off or it's, it's involved. And um, we also get the, uh, 
the frog people coming back and they're in the city or at least forms that, that are like them are in the city. And I think Jason Thompson interpreted that as literally the people changing into mm-hmm. the uh, which is right the I same think. forms. I mean, it, I, it, it's not in the story, but it, it's it definitely hinted at in the story. It, yeah, yeah, I am. Um, because uh, I just went back and had a quick look at it, and I maybe would need to read over it again. But it, it seems like it's when only twelve I first minutes. This, we could read it over again if we needed to. <laughs> it's only twelve minutes. Wow, so, twelve yeah, to fifteen um, minutes, something like that. It's really short. Yeah. Uh, my interpretation was it was like the ghosts of uh, the the murdered um, Ibians coming back and. But it, because I think there's no real mess. Like I'll read it. It's the, right Ib- here. The Ibian situation, the Ibian civilization doesn't come back literally, and they don't live at the lake again. Nothing lives at the lake until other people show up and find the idol. Um, Men so whose eyes were wild with fear shrieked aloud the sight within the king's banquet hall, where through the windows were seen no longer the forms of Nargis Hay and his nobles and slaves but a horde of indescribable green voiceless things with bulging eyes, pouting flabby lips, and curious ears. Things which danced horribly. (laughs) Wow. Mm. It's a callback. (laughs) Right. So, um... Bearing in their paws. paws, Keep going. Platters set with rubies and diamonds. Right. Containing uncouth flames. So they're they're holding the trays the slaves were holding. I mean, they're... Right, right. It feels like there was information there. Are they're these seeing themselves humans transformed, or mm. are they all gone mad with visions, or were they or have resurrected? They, have they just realized Possessed. that they were killing humans at the very beginning? Their ancestors were killing humans, and now they're all woke. <laughs> they hate themselves for what they've done. Right? Probably not that one. Mm. <laughs> Probably not that one. But it, it 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 is it is like the way to get them woke, right? Like, well, I like the ambiguity ambiguity oh, that yeah. uh, Lovecraft leaves it in. Um, uh, Jason's uh, uh, implication seems a little stronger, but it, he doesn't quite say what happened. No, no, it it's, happened. it's panels. and But you can see them, like, upset. And then what, oh, yeah. what's the upset Absolutely. about? Oh, right. And, and we have that kind of uh, that panel where I mentioned there was a full page uh, genocide scene it's almost mirrored exactly with the uh, the city collapsing as the people realizing you know the doom has come mm-hmm. All, and and the thing is is they don't come across as sympathetic well jason always puts children in right like there's the even if you don't you don't sympathize with these people partying on party beach of <laughs> uh, 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 the river eye or uh, this lake, right? There's still, there's kids there who are enjoying the balloons and they don't know that having a, an Ibian balloon head or an Ibian cookie is. Right. There's a horrible little panel where there's this kid, you know, swinging a stick at pinatas yes. of the fish frog and candy people. falling out, right? Yeah. Mm. <laughs> You know, kid. Kid is not saying, "Haha, my people destroyed these people." Kid is having a fun festival day. Yeah, on so. page twelve mm. at the bottom, right after they uh, they buy two of the fish fish blow up balloons or whatever, and the kids carrying around the two fish are uh, 
yeah, Ibian heads as balloons. Yeah, She's also holding yeah, like yeah. a little Ibian a doll. Baby. Right. right? A st- stuffed doll. And it's got an X on its stomach where you're supposed to stab or something. (laughs) Um, It doesn't come across as like, uh, this is a kid who deserved to be punished. So it might be, uh, you know, this is over-interpreting because kids are not in this story. right? It doesn't say, you know, and their children were really cute, (laughs) even though they were ugly and danced horribly. These things go along with it, right? You have a civilization, you have kids. Um, One of the things that I always think about, like, uh, in this this party carnival atmosphere where kids are uh, mixed with humans, the parents take the kids out and they tell the kids, oh, this is uh, this holiday you've never experienced it before. Or you were too young last year or whatever. There is a kind of uh, adults becoming like children, um, you know, dressing up in carnival costumes or Halloween costumes or whatever. And then there's also like the realization as you grow up that like where this stuff comes from and you get educated. Um this is not implied in the story at all. On the other hand, if you try handing this to a kid who's like six years old, they're not going to get the story. Um, but if you hand them the, the comic uh, and they're 11 years old, they will get the story. Because even if they never seen this in the history book, this idea of civilizations being destroyed, they know what a civilization is. And they say, why would anybody do that? And then we sort of lose that, <laughs> a lot of us, as we get older. Why would anybody do that? Well, you know, we have this ideology thing, and <laughs> they have stuff we want. They live near us, and they're ugly. <laughs> okay? Is that enough? we got to defend ourselves from those ugly dancers over there. There is uh, something that, when you do see it, you know, physically shown to us, like, it is weird, like, all the foods like uh, that are described... One of them is like uh, ankles from cam- camel ankles. Camel's feet. Camel the, feet. The pads of their feet or something like that. Right. Uh, delicacy, I'm sure. Uh, <laughs> but Presumably the, tender. <laughs> <laughs> very tender or, or yeah, delicious or whatever. Um, we do draw the line. You know, it's not cool, Connie. You can't cut up my dog. You can do that chicken over there. Damn but not it. that chicken, because that's <laughs> my family pet chicken. Don't kill that chicken. Kill that chicken, okay? Thank you. I, it, it, it strikes exactly. me as so weird. I've got, like, two coffins. I'm in my mom's garage. I'm holding two coffins full of chicken. I walk by the chicken, and I say to the chicken, Hi, chicken! As I walk by carrying two coffins. <laughs> full of chickens. <laughs> no wonder that chicken's traumatized. <laughs> <laughs> no wonder. <laughs> um, but... Uh, it has to be, rec- it, it's something that we have to reconcile, whereas the chicken doesn't. Mm. Uh, but we do, uh, we, we, as people reading the story, ex- want to extend it to the Ibians for sure. I think we're pretty much done, anyways. I think so. Yeah. Good story. I wish Jason had been here to uh, receive all that praise. Well, yeah, I guess he'll just good. have to wait for the podcast. Yeah, <laughs> tell him to listen and and leave yeah. comments saying you're uh, you're you're correct. I am the best. <laughs> Based on this, I want to read a bit more Lord uh, Dunsany. Mm. Never uh, a bad choice. He's I, I quite liked Idle Days on the Yarn. It was very relaxing to it listen is. to. It's very relaxing. Uh, so if there's there's some more like that, oh, there's lots. I, yeah. I will check them out. The mm. whole book of wonder is uh, really good, but there's some. Um, uh, check out the PDF page because I have 
tried to, I don't think I put them all up yet, but I've tried to match up the original illustrations. In some cases, they left them out. Uh. Mostly, mostly they're there, but they spread it out over a lot of pages. And I, I like to see them side by side like that, where you've got the story on one side and you've got the picture on the other. How it was intended to be. Yeah, yeah. Um, it was rich people's cool. entertainment. That I, uh, the name of the magazine was The Idler. <laughs> it was, yeah, you got nothing else to do. <laughs> you're, uh, you're, you, you, uh, Ascot or whatever is not this week. <laughs> so, <Yeah. laughs> you, you can go out and play with it. The ads in it were for like airplanes <laughs> and, oh, and, and cars, you know, like very expensive toys for rich people and where to send your yeah. kid to, uh, to military school. <laughs> There, it's not a uh, common mags, man's magazine, but the, the we are the rich people now because we have their stories. Yeah, a hundred years later. <laughs> <laughs> yep. This is uh, look. Look who's on top years. now. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll see. <laughs> All right, I'm gonna what press a stop. Yeah, <laughs> I uh, I think we lost most of the squeak core, so that that'll probably not uh, be in the show. Sorry, Trish. I know you're desperate to hear the This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com. And thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash SFF Audio. sure what what's going on with jason but i think he's he said he would be here so we'll just i'll dm him on um skype and then we can get into a big fight about something okay (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Um, i am using a new rig tonight trying to get used to linux but i have not taught myself how to use obs studio yet so you have no backup from me tonight all right um Text message Jason on the uh, show now, if ready. Avail. I'll add an extra word. If you are, or extra letters. There we go. Copy, send. And then do that to, um, I'm not sure we were ever going to get Alex, although he did sign up for it, so... Um, and then I'll just make sure nobody else is, I'm missing. I, I, uh, I don't, I don't think it's cool to exclude people just because you forget about them. <laughs> uh, There's a great big long list of people supposedly signed up for yeah. this thing today. Uh, so uh, Alex is not here. Jason, uh, Mr. Jim Moon, uh, it's too late for him. He's got a dog ah. and, uh, but he did provide the audio and gave me permission oh, yes. to use it. He said he might even re-record it, um, but he's busy, so um, we'll give them a minute. Um, uh, yeah. Well, what, what hot topics you got that we can get into a big fight over and hate each other over? I don't want to get into a big fight tonight. What? I'm kind of tired from this week. Well, that, yeah, but see, it's I've, supposed to get your juices flowing. 
Mm-hmm. I've been too talky on, on Twitter lately. You've been pretty talky on Twitter. Although, it, the problem is, is that movie is not hot that you made your character after. If, if it had come out, if you'd done that right after the uh, release of the Deadpool thing, like it would have been a little more hot because they had what that Deadpool act- thing. Oh, they re-released the Deadpool 2 with the actor from the movie that your thing is from. <laughs> What's the kid? What's the kid? Can you be a little more vague? <laughs> well, Evan should know the name of the goddamn movie he's referencing with his The Princess account. Bride. The Princess Bride. What's the name of the kid who, who's in who the movie? He's just the kid who says this is a kissing book. Yeah, but there's an actor. He's, like, he's an, a famous actor. Fred oh, Fred Savage. Savage. Fred Savage. Right. So if Fred Savage is in a re-release of Deadpool 2 where they make it PG for some reason, <laughs> and oh. they just take out all the swearing um, and then have uh, Fred Savage chained to the bed, misery style, and Deadpool's reading him a kissing book. And he's like, I'm grown up now. and st-. It's it's pretty cute. <laughs> so if you'd done it oh. went back when that had come out, like you would have some heat, you know, you would you bought some heat, but your reference is, is to a 1980s movie. And I get the joke, and you get the joke, even though I don't know the name of Fred Savage. <laughs> but almost know, nobody's going to joke, right? Yeah, he I guess. So. Accuse me of liking kissing books. Oh, I, well, <laughs> it was your. It was, yeah, it's a, it's an inside <laughs> joke. I'm just saying, like it, it, your hot, spicy hot takes um, are basically just for me. <laughs> Where Squeakcore is for everyone, right? Or, yeah, I've been talking a little bit about the squeak course. I, I really like. I, I really like the. Uh, I, it's like an airing of laundry. Hmm. Don't don't we need to air our laundry? Yeah, if it's getting smelly, then you do. <laughs> it sure and, is. And if squeak core's getting smelly, it then smells like a whole lot of squeeze been coring up this place. <laughs> yeah, gotta get rid of it. Um, get no, out of the sunlight. Shake it. I do want to read some um, and just see what it's just like. Just read Skalzi. Gonna... <laughs> Skalzi. Just read Skalzi. What's that one she mentioned? Goblin King? Yeah, yeah. Goblin. Goblin. Ah. So that's a fantasy, Emperor, right? I've read that. It's a charming Goblin. book. Is it did squeak you, Did you squee? Well, you know, I, I don't really know anymore what that definition is. Not that it ever... You know, it's a made-up term by one person that's no, uh, no, no, one no, podcast no, no. that's no, pushing that, it. Not true, false. They didn't make it up. They heard about it. They asked who yeah. made it. Somebody else said, I don't know, said, I heard it from this guy. They, they named someone in the one podcast. Yeah, they named somebody on some, you know, writing group thing. But they but they keep pushing it back. Like, they heard it from someone else, too. So it, it had been Every floating label's around. made up by, by someone like it, was, it was never in general usage, as far as I know. And I, I am <laughs> No, but it came into you. It, it, it started in November with their first podcast on it. I tweeted about that because I thought it was super interesting. And then they followed it up with this one that, you know, got a big splash. I don't know how that happened, but I mean, I tweeted about it right away because I thought it was super interesting. But no, nobody follows me in the Squeakor crowd. I'm, I'm blocked by uh, one of them, uh, Wendig. I didn't even know I was blocked until I'm like, oh, I'm blocked. And then I went to see if he was, he, he had used the term squee. Uh, <laughs> A lot of people use the term squee. Right. 
And and so writing for the audience to make them squee is part of it. But I think there's a nice list of definitions there. Yeah, I thought it was the, the second podcast was the first one was was fun because they're trying to figure it out. They're yeah, just trying to talk about it and, and and work it out in their heads. The second one, they had done their homework and they really it was a real analysis. It's like a scholarly investigation, I think. I mean, it was it also sub, a podcast, right? Yeah, it had subheadings, it had analysis, sources, evidence, that kind of thing. It was, but it, it, it was it, it was but done as a podcast, it just being a rant, but which it wasn't. It was the second one wasn't. No, I mean, there, there, people also say it's it's derisive or you know, dis, I don't know, it's lacks decorum. Well, that's the one I keep focusing on because I think it's hilarious, yeah. um, <laughs> or that it's it's on a, like an a, assault or an attack. On Squeakor, and I agree that it is, but that doesn't mean it's not, it, you can't use it, right? Um, so let me see if I can bring up the uh, Reddit thread that had somebody asking what it was, and they had just gone through the podcast and made notes. Uh, not that this is, has to be our topic of, uh, of discussion. I just thought it was, if somebody, nobody's got anything else, everybody's familiar with this. It's something to get our juices going while we uh, wait for... Oh yeah, pulp covers is reinstalling. So I'm here. Oh, there he is. Sorry, I, I it's Mr. Pulp Covers, not Pulp Covers. How dare I? <laughs> Can everyone hear me? Okay, I'm doing this from the basement, and I'm afraid the ear keeps coming on. So, is there a dull roar in the background? There is. <laughs> it All right, I'll mute myself when I'm not talking. Then. It isn't ruinous. It isn't ruinous, but um. Yeah, just we'll give a moment of silence um, uh, with your thing unmuted at some point, and then I can use that to scrape out the uh, background. Um, Okay. uh, I I think Alex has been following uh, the Squeakor thing as well. Not willingly. (laughs) (laughs) I I, I, I got a vision of uh, you before the Senate hearing, uh, General scratching your head. uh, (laughs) What's that guy? The one who lied to Congress, uh, the NSA director. All, all of them? <laughs> no, he, he says, are, are you spying on the uh, American public? And he, he gets his towel out and he puts it on his forehead. <laughs> and he says, not wittingly, as he looks up. <laughs> uh, this is like the signal to cut the mic, cut the mic. <laughs> wow. That's a, that's a different thing. But yeah. Um, I, I feel like the squeak where people are on to something. I'm not sure they've really nailed the definition yet. You're, you're um, talking about uh, not the people who practice Squeakor, but the people who defined or the brought people it up. Who, the people in the podcast who, who defined it. Yeah. Um, they clearly have touched a nerve mm-hmm. because everyone's like, that's not even a real thing. And all of us oh, who yeah. love it are really offended by this. <laughs> uh, that's, what, that's what I'm so interested in is, is, is if you look at the comments, they're all over the place. They're, it's like, um, we know this guy's bad. <laughs> out there some guy so and maybe maybe it's because he's racist no no that doesn't stick okay what if he's sexist oh yeah 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 <laughs> no no oh shit okay so they're like uh, using a whole bunch of different uh attack methods and nothing's really sticking but one of them uh that i thought was really funny um was the uh, some guy was really listening to the po- and I, I think that's super interesting that we go back and re-listen i listened to, to it a second time i know evan did um, just to, you know, make sure we're not being gaslit and confirming that we're not being gaslit by what people are saying about it who possibly haven't heard it. 
Um, one of the th- things that the guy said, oh, yes, this was real, <laughs> but not anymore, right? And, that, <laughs> and, and so people, people sort of had a uh, saying, well, the most current example is from 2014. And uh, so to me, I think that that's uh, uh, possibly a good argument against Squeakor that it was a thing, like cyberpunk was a thing, right? But it's no longer a thing because we're on to other stuff now. I, I, I can't back that up because, I, like I say, I do not read a lot of modern stuff, right? So I, I just, but I, I see the practitioners. Uh, Chuck Wendig didn't die, and uh, John Scalzi didn't die, and uh, the two people who run the Our Opinions Are Correct podcast are still podcasting and still writing books, and I'm pretty sure they're Squeakor. I'm not 100% sure of that because I haven't read their stuff, but they talk about their books a lot. And a lot of it is about, you know, making things like that are on the list. If I can get the list out. Uh, no, I don't have it. Anybody have that handy? What I mean, makes, what makes my, my I don't go to Reddit very much. So make sure anything that Tor.com talks about. <laughs> They were saying in the podcast that like um, they thought all the Hugo or most of the Hugo sort of nominees yeah. were in that genre. So well, um, I haven't re- I haven't read all those, right? So uh, I'm, I haven't I'm, read. I don't think yeah, I found any the of list. Them. Oh, so of of things that make it squeak core. Is that right? I think this is unless it's a different list. I think it's the one. Okay. Uh, so overwhelmingly preoccupied with setting up the hell yeah epic moments. Yes. Rather than organic character growth. Characters that are very genre-aware are constantly drawing attention to the trope of the story they occupy without actually breaking the fourth wall. Okay. I don't know. So that's the red shirts thing. That The red shirts is kind of an example yeah, of that, and that which and, I didn't read either. Yeah. No, Characters are extremely sarcastic and have a lot of lazy banter. I've just seen the, the little stuff I've read. Like They say like uh, Poppy Wars and Outsqueak War and a good example, but even that has this. Like, characters that are sarcastic and have a lot of lazy banter. Because it's easy to write for the author than real jokes or real humor. Like that's why I never read the second. So that's subversive, though, to Poppy say war to war. say that real jokes. Are, so snark is a kind of humor. It's I don't think it's a it's a I think it is unsophisticated and like I much prefer puns, which I think are much deeper. Yeah. <laughs> Shakespeare agrees with you. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, mm-hmm. but is he the snarky? He I, he probably has. We we probably would call it puns. He loved puns, um, and and he loved sex and fart jokes. But did he like snarky? Like where his character? I don't think his characters are snarky. That doesn't seem right. But there's something. They're definitely yeah something. I keep going. Uh, the, the next point related to the last point: a huge discomfort with intense emotions. Major emotional moments are undercut with Wendenesque. 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 Yeah. Just interruptions like what the hell happened to give a kind of glib distance from real really full experience in the moment and so it's kind of like so one way of putting this is like this mcu vacation of literature like an mcu movement is yeah. fine for two hours but when you read it in a book it doesn't feel right it feels mm. like this should be in a movie kind of thing um yeah i think the no sex right that the say the what's that raquel what's that woman's name raquel the, s hot, benedict yeah raquel she did that pod or the blog post, like every everyone is sexy, but no one's horny, right? Mm. Yes, um, something like that, which I think is part of Squeak Court too. Like no sex. That's kind of why I'm doing with the no, no kid. Like it's just a kissing book. Kind mm-hmm. of. That's a 
level of what I was trying to make comment on, but no one follows me, so it's good. <laughs> I, I enjoy it, but um, yeah, minor audience. Because I like kissing books. Everyone knows that. So <laughs> It doesn't have kissing in it? I, I don't care if it's well written or it has anything to say, just as long as it has kissing. <laughs> or I, I think... I think kissing and all its manifestations is, is a major part of life mm-hmm. and, and should be. And literature that doesn't have that, or like the new Star Wars movies. Like the, I don't like Star Wars at all, but the original ones at least had kissing. And there was sex, a kiss know. in the first movie. Yeah, there was like... And, it's, and then the second movie, too. I'm probably the, in the like, third. In the, the new ones, it's like you got all these hot people that don't fuck. That's weird. It's weird. All right, anyways, moving on. Yeah. Um, over-explanation of any, everything happening rather than leaving room for interpretation. Mm. Um, so it's kind of the black and whiteness. It's the opposite of, of the design. story we're going to do today. Metaphors that fall apart after any scrutiny. I don't know of any examples of that, so let's take it. And then here's the big one. Here's where they lose decorum. Is they say, a neoliberal preoccupation with making sure that everything mm. works out for all the characters, including converting the villains into allies. Star Trek so Discovery. I, yeah, I don't know. I don't. I don't know how that second part follows, but I absolutely agree that it is neo, neoliberal. Um, and mm-hmm. I know that um, Cora uh, put that in quotation marks, and she saw it, mm-hmm. I think, as a slur as well. But the thing is, is I think a lot of people don't who are neoliberal don't know that they are. It's just sort of the dominant. It's 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 like basically the dominant political force in the world, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, the conflict with uh, China is basically over whether who's going to control other countries, right? Who's going to control uh, Africa? Who's going to control Taiwan and and that sort of thing? Um, Canada goes along with the U.S., which is neoliberal, and so Canada is neoliberal. But we try we don't practice it as much as you guys do at home. Um, I guess I'm only speaking to people who are in the U.S., but, um, you know, it, it's 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 very heavily practiced in the States. It's practiced in Canada, too, and that's also, you know, what the problem is. And it's practiced all over the world. But if you do it domestically, it, it causes more, uh, you know, Macron is a neoliberal and stuff like that, right? Like, it causes problems. Uh, but if you do it uh, foreign, it's, like, sort of extractive. So... I, I, I get the sense that, for example, the two people I know who I think are practitioners of Squeakor, not that I've read their books, but I've listened to what their books are about, are the two who run the Our Opinions Are Correct podcast. Um, Attitudes Toward Copyright is a good example. It's um, uh, if you are for locking down everything and extracting, that's neoliberal, right? That's It's like... Yeah. Um, it's, privatizing it's been, the commons. Private, uh, exactly. Privatizing things that are public. That is neoliberalism. Um, so you've got some uh, city water supply that is uh, done by the city, and you say, we can privatize that. That's a neoliberal policy. So I don't think that the two who run How that, is that neoliberal? I view that as a conservative thing to take all the public things and sell well, them all to businesses. Neoliberalism okay, isn't... Is, isn't it's new isn't, liberalism. It's like new 19th century liberalism. Yeah, it's not it's, like taking, it's not a conservative the, uh, right-wing value. It's a, it's a conservative or it's not even really... See, you kind of get... 
kind of get twisted because it has the word liberal in it. And liberal means like free, right? Statue of Liberty, etc. But the problem is, is it's, it, it, it's getting its definition. It's basically what uh, the first Clinton president, uh, the only Clinton president was. You see him as a left wing figure because he's running the Democratic Party. But what he did was he made it easier for a consolidation in the media to happen. And why, why do you do that? It's because you're trying to allow for bigger monopolies. That is a neoliberal practice. But this is – he didn't invent it, right? He was just the first sort of left-wing theoretically. Yeah, it goes back to the reaction to the New Deal. I think the early neoliberal thinkers when they were kind of in the – I'll, I'll just type a little it in. bit in the ghetto in like in the fifties and sixties. They were there, but they've kind of been risen to higher status with the rise of neoliberalism. Thatcher, Reagan, those people. But yeah, it's privatization, deregulation, globalization, free trade, austerity, reductions of government spending to increase the role of the private sector. So when you privatize a prison or a school or something like that, that's a neoliberal reform. Deregulation. Quote, that's that's uh, yeah. that's really important to it, and. But it's it's just, it's what the world we live in, right? And it's it's part a big part of it has been the reduction of the commons and the you know enclosure, the continuation of the enclosure movement and things like that. That's like the, you're talking about like the Should, Scottish enclosures where they kick people off of uh, yeah, land that they live on, other things where, and ship them off to North know, America or like you say, Australia. waters privatized or public institutions, asylums. You know, you get rid of. Anything that's paid for the taxpayers, and you replace it with some private corporation. Uh, uh, so uh, one, they're more one, efficient. One of the ones that that is sort of under plan in the U.S. is um, to turn the uh, uh, social security into uh, yeah. a private, yeah, pro- for profit. Good example of that thing. Now it hasn't quite happened yet, and one of the reasons is. Um, uh, they would catch a lot of hell from the people who actually vote, who are rich and old. Um, yeah, I, I say rich. I just mean they they have a b- more um, uh, capital, <laughs> houses, homes um, than uh, younger people. So it hasn't quite happened. That quite hasn't happened in the states. But um, like Germany practices, which is you know, if you live in Germany, it's a fairly socialistic country in the sense that they they uh, give you lots of vacation time they give you a free education healthcare a lot of lot of you know state funded state controlled state regulated stuff but when germany pract- you know does eu stuff they want to starve uh, other countries that are in the eu like greece so although it isn't practiced domestically as much uh, in Germany, it is practiced externally, and there's a lot of countries that are pressured by neoliberalism, and Canada included. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was just thinking, like, if Trish is not super familiar with it, it's not it's yeah. not on everybody's lips like it should be, but it, it, it took it takes a while. There's like a a lag time, and if if mm-hmm. It, 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 what's so interesting is that um, the the start of that podcast, they're talking about how if you are a fish in the water, you can't recognize the water. This is literally true, right? Like, there, what was that? It's that Mark Fisher book, right? Uh, capitalism, capitalist, capitalist realism. realism. Um, it starts with um, 
there is no alternative, right? Nobody can conceive of another way of doing things. Um, and, mm. and, and it's because it is the dominant platform. It is the dominant ideology. And the ones that are against it are pariahs, right? North, North Korea is a pariah. Uh, Iran is a pariah. Uh, Venezuela is a pariah. What, what threat does Venezuela hold to the United States? They don't have nuclear weapons, right? They I mean, in, in terms of neoliberalism, um, I think uh, people are becoming more aware of mm. it, like especially the last five years. But I think before that, I wonder. No, no, um, I, I hadn't heard of it like 10 years ago, right? Mm. I, I mean, maybe I'd heard it, but I'd but never it, taken it in and figured out what it was. Yeah, it, it was – there was the, a sort of like a, a cycle where like – at least in Australia – stuff was being privatized and then like five ten years later people realized now it's much shitter than it was before right and then got upset about it and that's when people started to recognize neoliberalism um so but before that i'm, I'm not sure whether it, it was kind of like some things was sort of like an experiment like the ideology maybe was there but it hadn't been enacted at least in australia um which is the only thing i'm familiar with but uh so, yeah, but I would agree with you. Like, you know, it was uh, sort of invisible. Mm-hmm. For well, unlike Squeakor, like neoliberal was defined by its practitioners like a hundred years ago. It's really in, the term has been around for a long time. But yeah, I mm. think it has been commonly known. But the people who call themselves neoliberal did so proudly, you know, back in the yeah it, 30s when the they're reacting who, to the yeah the, the people like, who say Indian today ideas don't self-identify as neoliberal so like um nancy pelosi isn't neoliberal um mm-hmm. but she doesn't say you know i'm a neoliberal she says we're all capitalists here capitalism and neoliberalism go together but there were other forms of capitalism that were like tr- the traditional conservatism is don't fuck things up don't change things this is actually fuck things up uh, because we have a better idea than the idea that we have currently. Yeah, it's Naomi Klein's Shock Doctrine book. Mm. That's that's about ten years old, maybe even more. That, I think that's maybe when I was first really aware of so, the ha- concept. Can you read? But her that? idea was the. Oh, go, go for oh, it. Oh, read which one? Uh, well, I, I was just thinking, like, so the first part of that saying they're neoliberal, and oh, then they the, want, fact that, the characters yeah. are. So the way that they def- they prove they're neoliberal or suggest they're neoliberal is they have a preoccupation with making sure everything works out for characters, including converting villains into allies. That's a, I, I mean, I think there are other ways they're neoliberal, like the copyright thing that you mentioned. Mm. And I mean, if you look at like some of these, again, I, I kind of get this stuff through film more than I, cause I don't read these books that often, you know, how, you got a group like the Avengers, like this, mm-hmm. going in, fucking shit up, but it all works out. Which right. was the, the first one was written by Wayden, or Whedon. Yeah. And then, so I think there's something to this. The villains into allies thing, I immediately thought of Discovery, because they do that. They, they take or turn this genocidal emperor into like one of the heroes of the story. It's bizarre. I think my recorder's broken. Hmm. Um, yeah, when, uh, they were talking about Squeakle, I think the only thing that I'm really familiar with that fits it is the MCU, um, because it's just so over the top and like, 
I don't know. I I've, haven't really watched very many of the films because I, I don't particularly like them. But um, it seemed like exactly what it was. Like a lot of fuck yeah moments, <laughs> um, unrealistic <laughs> characters. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Can we say Squeakor is the kind of literature written by people who only watch Marvel movies? Mm. No. Yeah. No, I think it was <laughs> they. They talk about like where this comes from a little bit on the podcast. It's uh, like people who grew up more with the internet, grew up more with movies and not literature. So they do make that point. Not specifically saying it's caused by MCU because those writers would be really young, right? It existed mm. alongside MCU. And so and these are not super like so if 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 we if we include Scalzi and Wendig who are both m- mentioned, right? Um, I don't think they were said to be the core practitioners of Squeakor, but they're certainly mentioned in the podcast. And I, I am, mm-hmm. I've read at least one skull, I think two Scalzi books, right? Um, it, they're not way younger than me. Uh, if they're probably similar age is my guess. So um, they probably saw Star Wars striking is the, and I, I've talked about this on Twitter is the let's not allow people or, or, encourage people to read older things you, you know what i'm talking about it's yeah. I, I had to find i had a difficult oh. time finding like examples in my own twitter thread because I, I didn't have the i didn't know i would need this later on but basically so there was an article uh, a couple of years ago mm-hmm. a, uh, a professor gave the tolkien world fantasy lecture at some university mm-hmm. um and she was a she was an author i don't think she was, she was an author she was a fantasy author, and she gave this like the Tolkien lecture. Mm-hmm. And she gets up and starts, yeah, so I've never read Tolkien. I don't feel like I need to. Right. I just write new fantasy, and it's better than that old stuff. Right. Yeah, that's And that was idea. her talk at the, the World but, Fantasy. Which is fine, um, but uh, the fact that she has to bring it up means it's not fine, right? <laughs> she thinks it's not fine. It's come up a lot. So uh, it was like... There was a uh, yesterday I was talking or maybe it was the day before I was talking to a guy, random guy on the internet playing a game with, and I heard a goose, <laughs> you know, a goose, mess. and I said you got a goose, and he says yep. <laughs> I said does it give you eggs? And he got really mad at me. <laughs> and I, I'm like, Why people always ask that? <laughs> That's <what I'm- laughs> so. Uh, he, I didn't get the reason why. Like I, I started had to speculate um, as to why because I didn't want to investigate that much uh, as to why he kept a goose. Maybe he's, it's a pet. Maybe he's keeping it because he wants to fatten it up for for Christmas. I don't know why he keeps a goose. My mom keeps a chicken or a hen rather because it provides eggs. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> the fact that you you know. Does it provide eggs is not a crazy question. Have you read Tolkien might come up if if uh, you're go to up to a person at a party and they say um, <laughs> What do you do? Uh, what do you I do? Fantasy. I write fantasy. Do you like say, oh, I like Tolkien and they and, and do you like Tolkien? And I've never read Tolkien. I don't feel I need to. Um okay. <laughs> yeah. I don't want to read your books is what I'm I'm thinking. Now, uh, some people wrote r- wrote fantasy before, uh, uh, before uh, or and didn't read Tolkien, right? 
Some people did that, like William Morris. <laughs> Lord Dunsany. Lord Dunsany. Yeah. H.P. Lovecraft. Right? Um, Robert E. Howard. Some people did this. Um, but uh, I, th- I think you could probably even get away with reading, uh, having not read uh, J.K. Rowling. Um, uh, although it's mu- if you if you like J.K. Rowling, and we imagine Tolkien didn't exist, I think you really have to read Narnia to uh, be a J.K. Rowling, you know? Because it's... J.K. Rowling is a hodgepodge of influences, and there's no one person that you need to read to to get J.K. Rowling. No, no, I'm saying to be J.K. Rowling. Oh, to be? Yes. Uh, mm, Maybe. I agree that she is a hodgepodge of influences. (laughs) um, I uh, I have never read J.K. Rowling. I read the first book. It's... Fun. It's like a kid's sort of, you know. It, uh, what's, uh, w- it's derivative, and the series is full of distressing tropes. Don't waste your time. <laughs> wow. A topic to get her blood boiling. <laughs> oh, wow. Um, uh, seriously, I would Jesse, agree. I thought about not coming on the podcast oh, really? today because I knew you were going to be talking about. Well, I know. I'm I've happy. Seen the discourse I'm, flow I'm, by. I'm happy to change the topic. Time to read up on it myself. Oh well. But I'll just we, say here, I do not endorse Jesse's opinions. <laughs> <laughs> well, my opinions are at least somewhat informed by listening to the <laughs> podcast about it twice, but they're not informed by reading the books generally. So, uh, well, back to the influences, Jesse. There was a few things. I think maybe like Xena, Warrior Princess, maybe, or is, is something like that might be a, more of an influence than the MCU. I Buffy. Know. I think that's a good call. Buffy, yeah, Buffy. That's Whedon. That, right? that, yeah, that the came up. Um, um, or D and D was the other one. It's like Zena like an OP play. character dropped into a situation. They're probably going to win without a background, without trauma, like any trauma that might come through the story, but mm. there's no baggage as characters. They're kind of emotional blank slates. Just yeah, to well, bounce off kind of pop culture tropes and stuff off of. I am, um, I like, I had a sort of trouble um, defining or thinking up examples. I feel like there's a lot of books that have one foot mm. in this world and one foot don't. I brought up a fantasy book I read years ago with Jesse the other day called The Lies of Locke Lamora. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. and, uh, and I read Jesse's review. From 2009, I re- so I didn't know about Squeakor back then. I didn't, I didn't either, and I think I, I probably read it like 2015 or so. Um, and I, I liked it, um, but I also felt like, as I was reading it, I'm like, well, this is kind of, um, there's an element of uh, wish fulfillment. Like you have this hyper-intelligent character who like bad stuff happens to him. But he, he also has the ability to think his way very cleverly out of a lot of situations. So it's not um, – I yeah, I don't think it's was exactly – Was there kissing in there? I, don't, I do not remember it that well. I, I, thought, there, they, I thought there was some there sort is, of relationships. There is a – there's a love interest. I can't remember what happens. But there's definitely like – well, you know what? It's probably an example of everybody's hot, no one's horny. <laughs> oh, okay. That, that's yeah, what those, I – They'll have relationships, but they're like these – Kind of sexless relationships, right? Well, they're very it's, it's, like um, it's Tony Stark and Pepper Potts, right? Okay, Two hot people that never mm. you don't get any passion from them. But they let's let's uh, let's look at this for a second, because uh, so m- my problem with the new Star Trek uh, 
I'm talking about like Discovery because I haven't seen. I saw. I you know I did see a lot of Picard. So, anyways, the new Star Trek was that it was not about the uh, science fiction ideas. It was just set in a science fiction setting. Um, so like most of the time. I think of a normal Star Trek episode is they go down to a planet and they, the planet has a weird culture. Uh, like uh, one of my favorite uh, examples of this is a really sort of shitty episode, but really good ideas is the one where uh, Captain Kirk and crew go down to a planet and it's the it's the planet of the blondes. It's just a whole bunch of sexy people running around. And uh, Wesley doesn't take off his shirt, but he runs around with a bunch of girls and a bunch of boys who are all blondes. And he accidentally falls into like a, I don't know. He a, steps on the grass or the flowers or right, something. Yeah. Right. And then they, they say, oh, sorry, you have to be executed. Right. And that's the laws. <laughs> that's the laws. So they're sexually liberated, but they're not, um, they're not sort of uh, compassionate towards little mistakes <laughs> like as a juvenile if you you know get into a bad mo- mood and you punch another kid in the face that means you have to be uh you know uh, put to, put put in put to sleep like that's a, a possible idea that people have right i well, that, that one had some kind of overload right that was making all the rules i think that uh, some that's alien true. was running yeah, but the that planet, was right? but that but that wasn't the core idea the core idea is there's people who have a different culture than you is that a better way to go? Now, what I've found in the other shows is that that's not what the focus is. The focus is um, we've got a, a, a we've got drama. There's a mystery. There's a oh, is, there's some trope called the magic box or mystery box. Mystery box, <laughs> right? This is the J.J. Abrams style of I got mm, tricked about, right? I, I watched Lost, and I'm like, oh, this is definitely going to go somewhere. <laughs> they know what they're doing. Huge mistake, right? Um, so the mystery box idea to keep you strung along is not science fiction in my view. I think it's, it's set in a science fiction setting. Like, you can imagine Game of, the, Game of Thrones. It's set in an alternate world, um, and it's and it's just uh, people having sex orgies every episode. Now, in a way, that is the show, right? <laughs> Especially on the television. But he also does this thing where he'll change it up, and he says, "Here's this thing from history. I think you, you, you haven't nobody's talked about in a, a while. It's called the Red Wedding." And I was, oh, I see. There's like an idea there, right? It isn't just uh, relationships, or you know, it, it isn't a sitcom style reset. It isn't a whole bunch of other things. It's something very specific. So if you, if you, uh, 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 I think someone else was talking about uh, James Wallace Harris wrote a essay. He's a 70 year old and he talks about how it's hard to be 70, but he, he writes good essays. Anyways, he was talking about reading science fiction for, you know, 60 years and how, there's these things in science fiction that are really interesting and they're delusional, like the belief that aliens could come visit the earth or the belief that we can travel to other solar systems and stuff. If you watch Star Trek because you think that these events will happen, that's a mistake. If you watch Star Trek because you think that one day we'll be on the Starship Enterprise um, and Kirk will be born and <laughs> there will be a guy named Spock, that's a mistake. If you think we could do something like that, Pretty much that's a mistake, too. But 
it doesn't mean that you can't tell science fiction stories. You can do it like Larry Niven does, right? Where he says, yeah, I know there's no such thing as faster than light travel, but we're going to wave that away because what if there was a structure the size of a, a planetary orbit? How could you uh, make that a habitable zone? How, how are we going to do that? That doesn't matter. Think of that. What would the horizon look like? Why would somebody build it, right? And that's the story. So that's a, and that is a science fiction story. It's impossible, but it's called hard science fiction because he's, he's waving away all the things that don't matter to get to the thing that does. But I don't think, I think Squeakor does the opposite of that if we're talking about television shows and movies and, and a, a lot of what sounds like a lot of books are, is they're saying, I like the, the captain on a voyage and he has to get his crew to do a hell yeah moment when they defeat the enemy and that sort of thing. And, and so the, 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 the core of it is the squee as opposed to uh, the, what, what's the original science fiction is sense of wonder, right? You got mm-hmm. the sense of wonder as they would actually spell it out as one big word, sense of wonder, as opposed to, the sense of squee, which is not really a sense. It's more of a, like a, a, a button you press. Like, oh, I love those things, right? Dopamine hit. Yeah, maybe yeah. that's it. Maybe that, but a, a dopamine hit is not the same as like, um, you know, telling a kid how far away Orion's belt is, right? And that mm. why it's called Orion's belt, even though it's not really a belt and the stars inside in one of those. And we get the telescope out and we show, look, there's a, uh, a nebula there. That's why that stuff's red. And look, if we look over at that thing over there, that's actually Saturn. You see those ears on it. That's a ring. I'm like, wow. Right? <laughs> there's no, um, so there's no kissing there. Exactly. Unless it's like, uh, yeah, that's a different story. <laughs> there's no kissing there, but there is a sense of wonder. And, and, and the idea, like, we could build a rocket. We could go see that place. And technically, we have in a couple of instances. And if we can't go there, we can set our robots there. And, and that is a different thing than the, um, like, uh, think of Old Man's War, which uh, I, I quite liked as a book. I thought it was really fun. Um, mm-hmm. But I think it's quite light, you know? Like, it, uh, one of the things I liked about it was... Uh, the Scalzi stand-in old man saying, shut up, asshole, to a little thing installed in his brain. I thought, oh, that's cute, right? Now, I'm, uh, you can call me anything you want. You might consider calling me John. And he says, I'm going to call you asshole. <laughs> like, oh, okay, that's cute. Um, and then, you know, he goes off and does stuff. I don't even remember the rest of the plot, really, except, you know, he got rejuvenated. Um, <laughs> he goes off and does stuff that you see in... Uh, Starship Troopers and, uh, you know, three other books that are like that. Fighting bugs or whatever. <laughs> Maybe they're not bugs, but it don't matter because that, that was the... It was uh, in dialogue with it, but it was saying like, hey, <laughs> as opposed to, what about this? And so I was thinking, mm. um, you know, uh, there's been a lot uh, made of... Uh, out of and of um, the uh, cold equations, which I've always thought was very badly written, but not badly written in the way that a lot of people think it's badly written. They don't like the ending, 
I just think it's sort of clunkily written, and I think it takes too long to get where it's going. Um. <laughs> you always think things take too long, except maybe this, not this story. Oh, I like the Brethren. Like I thought the Brethren long. was a little bit, uh, a little bit long, but not way too long. Um, but yeah, I, I agree. Most things are probably too long. <laughs> that is something I would say. But um, it, it, that that story is not like six pages, right? It's twenty five or something like that. It's, it's not short. And a lot of people have written responses to it, right? And there was just a, mm-hmm. a new one recently. This or maybe it's just this year, twenty twenty two, right? Yes. Um, mm-hmm. But there's been them over the over the not centuries yet, but decades. There's been lots and lots. And so one of the things I did um, just race uh, just a minute ago before we started is I just typed in equations into ISFDB. Now, not every story here is a response to the cold equations, um, but a lot of the ones that are written after it, which is almost all of them are uh, responses. So, um, uh, and not all of the, all of the stories that are responses use the word equations. I know that um, James Patrick Kelly has one that's got dinosaurs in it or something, and that's not, uh, it doesn't have equations in the title. You just, when you're reading it, you say, oh, this is a response to the cold equation. So uh, Robert Sheckley has done one. Um, there's a, a, I saw one in uh, Clock's World recently called yeah, The that's, Cold Calculation. Yes. yes. Is that the one you... Uh, yeah. That's the one I mentioned being this year. I haven't read it, but somebody suggested I do so. Um, I yeah. assume it's... <laughs> it isn't... Um, uh, Amy oh, Ogden. Yeah, so I I don't know if she is Squeakore or not Squeakore, but there was something uh, in either the podcast or maybe Evan and I talking about it was um, about uh, speaking to the manager about the cold equations, <laughs> um, and mm-hmm. the, and the idea that the, the the reason that story is important and good, even though it's shittily written and way too long. <laughs> Um, is because it has an idea. Now, it turns out that the idea is not even from the author. It's from John W. Campbell, he sh- who shall have his uh, award revoked, etc. And I, I agree that he was wrong about almost everything. <laughs> uh, <laughs> however, the idea uh, of the ending is a much better idea than the one that uh, our, our author, Tom Godwin, had. He just wanted to have the s- solution solved by somebody saving the girl. But uh, Campbell's saying, no, the whole point of this story that I'm making you write and rewrite and rewrite is that uh, she can't be saved because the math doesn't allow it. And people say, well, that's uh, stupid. You shouldn't – it's an engineering problem or it's this kind of problem or it's that kind of problem. Um, You shouldn't design your systems with that little leeway. Right, right. Just a stowaway can – yeah, destroy yeah. your route. Yeah, or, you know, like that you have no, le- you know, you can't even like have maneuvering errors, right? Or right. they're like a, <laughs> anything. It's uh, that you wouldn't power your car with just enough gasoline to get to the, to the next, uh, or your boat to get to the next island. You would put in a redundant amount of fuel. <laughs> yeah, Duh. but I think to your main point, Jesse, you're right that if it had been a happy ending, it would not have lived in the public science fiction consciousness for. 60 years or however yeah. long it's been since that was published not a chance and and so in in mike resnick writing responses and paul levinson writing responses and so you know so many people writing murray leinster right 
even if they are dealing with something else, they are in dialogue with it when they have read it and do this thing. So th- there's a combination of of uh, rejecting the past, saying you don't need to have read the cold equations. Obviously, if you're responding to it, you probably should have. <laughs> Otherwise, your story's not going to maybe be on topic. Um, but there's also this, uh, like, I don't want that to be true. I don't want it to be true that if you do your math wrong, things can't work out. And so, like, a, uh, I rewatched The Martian recently. I did not reread it. I rewatched mm-hmm. it recently. And that is actually a kind of response to the cold equations. It says, we fucked up. <laughs> Can we <laughs> fix this? Well, the thing is, is the botanist in this case, Mark Watney, is very much uh, a competent Heinleinian-style character who's going to science the fuck out of this, right? Right. Um, now, it, ha- it just so happens he happens to have a writer who wants to ha- make a happy ending happen for him, so he makes him a botanist. They just so happen to have potatoes, right? Everything is planned so that mm-hmm. he can get the nice ending that we all want. But it wasn't like... Uh, it wasn't like the way the author wrote this is he got some dice and he says, this is the amount of extra fuel they have. And he rolls it. Oh, shit. <laughs> right? Because the book won't work out that way. All books are fake in that sense. The only one that uh, I know of as a possible counterexample is uh, the way uh, Philip K. Dick wrote The Man in the High Castle, right? Consulting the uh, wari sticks or whatever uh, to see what page to turn to to find out what's going to happen next in the book. And I, I think he also was able to massage these <laughs> uh, cryptic sayings from the I Ching <laughs> to make the story work out because it worked out great. Um, but on the other hand, uh, if your idea is that uh, cold equations don't exist because my state can't be cold, I just have to call the manager. <laughs> you don't understand the universe doesn't have a manager right but there is this Mm. other idea that there is a manager out there and that we can all look out for each other and that uh i can if we can all uh, so i actually had that idea early on is now that the cold war is over why can't we just incorporate a russia into nato once we get rid of all our enemies then we don't have to have nato anymore but they didn't do that. They said, we're not, we're, uh, so Russia says, yeah, we're getting rid of the Warsaw Pact. I guess this uh, Cold War is over. Like, you guys won. And the uh, United States is like, yeah, we agree. Um, and then they make an agreement not to start including the former Soviet satellite states into NATO. And then they keep doing it. And so, so like, if, if you eventually got Russia and China and uh, North Korea and Venezuela all into NATO, would NATO still exist? Isn't it just there to enforce the dominant will? I think it is. And so it, you, it, it is a fantasy that you can turn all enemies and former enemies into into friends. Maybe that's what that part is about. I just, I, I don't well, know. I'm, I I think it's well. I, I don't know. I guess with the Coles equations, the reason it's such a powerful story is because it's heartbreaking, um, mm-hmm. and that and and it's uncomfortable. It is right 
to to read it. It it feels bad and wrong, and the entire time you're going, "Isn't there some way? There's something else, right?" Um, uh, like I'm and, saying, you can cut off one of your legs, bud. Just start hacking. <laughs> I've read a short story answer where the where the pilot cuts off their own legs with a sure. laser and ejects them to save the girl. But th- that again, miss fundamentally misunderstands the point the story's trying to make. Right? That Campbell's trying to pound home because mm-hmm. that they yeah. do that in the story. So it's a rejection. Oh, <laughs> uh, uh, well, I think all, all these, all these uh, like responses. It's kind of it's understandable because the the story's uncomfortable. We want it's only human nature to want to try and figure out a way where everything could work out. And like, the point is that you just can't. But it's but it's understandable why people write responses to it. Um, but it's also like my uncle got pancreatic cancer. Before I I mm. I knew what pancreatic cancer was, I just you know everybody's got a pancreas, uh, and, you know you can get skin cancer. Sometimes you die, sometimes you don't. Uh, it turns out with pancreatic cancer, basically you die, you just die. Mm. Just, they're, you know it's one of the ones that you know it gets you. By the time you know it's 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 basically over. Um, now when I'm talking to him, <laughs> he doesn't think it's basically over, but he must have done some research himself. Uh, probably a little more than me, considering he got the diagnosis before I heard about it. Um, so you can say, oh, you know, there's there's that 1% it's, chance that I'm not going to be in that majority number. But it's like saying, you know, um, I'm a human. Um, mostly humans have always died. But, uh, you know, some, like Robert J. Sawyer, thinks... <laughs> He's going to get his consciousness uploaded at some point. Or, you know, we can cut our heads off and get uh, new robot bodies or count, download. This is all delusional thinking, right? It, it, it is striving, and we want people to strive, but it is delusional. So that's the, that's the real point of that story is it's to say, well, maybe some things can't be massaged. <laughs> like the, there is a meteor coming to Earth, and we didn't do anything about it. And it, we can't mm. deflect and it, and it. it. And it's too late to try and figure anything out. Right. Yeah. And, and the, um, that, that, that's been a But book, even then, right? you know, the human nature would be people would be in denial about it. Sure. Um, uh, but but so, yeah, they would still uh, be wrong, right? Now, uh, the, yep. Yeah. Possibly. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, you know, the cool, uh, some of the other titles here, the cool equations, uh, the dark equations... Uh, the differential equations, the lukewarm equations, <laughs> <laughs> the man who read equations. So some of these are not, you know, some of these are unrelated. But um, the Daedalus, like the important part is when you're doing the math, you say, "Look, my <laughs> here's my income. <laughs> here's the thing I want to buy." Um, they say I can get credit. Um, but I'm going to leave that out for now. <laughs> Just let, uh, I could buy a Lamborghini, <laughs> but I won't have a house to park it in. <laughs> you just have to face facts. Uh, whereas the opposite mm. is like, uh, that book, the secret, right? You just <laughs> vision, put it on your vision board and <laughs> money will start coming manifest in it. and you'll manifest it. Um, 
But don't you think it's, I mean, I haven't read any of these responses to the cold equations. I've only read the original story, mm -hmm. but I think it's cool that there's a dialogue generated by that. I mean, that Absolutely. all says, like, the story itself says a lot about human nature. Just by reading it, you see your own reaction. And the fact that there are also stories that respond to it also says a lot. It's a cool situation overall. Mm -hmm. Like, all of these stories being, it's, it's like a chemical reaction mm -hmm. of human emotion that generates these new stories. Um, but I have to read some of them. I'll at least check out the Clark's world story, um, and see what that's like. But, uh, what was that mm, one called? Uh, some, somebody had that. The name. cold calculations. Calculations. Yeah. There's a, there's an audio book on their podcast. Yeah. I, I didn't, um, I didn't look for the cold, but I'm, I bet there's some going to be some other cold things. Lots, other yeah. Yeah. Mm. And some of them will be related. Um, it's it's fun. Um, the reason that came up, by the way, uh, in I was not necessarily planning. I just hadn't. I've been busy. Sorry about this, Trish. I wasn't actually <laughs> trying to rehash this. It's just I, I I do believe we need a warm up. We still haven't got uh, Jason, so we'll just start without him, I guess. But uh, the reason I I uh, we've been warming up for fifty nine minutes. I think <laughs> that is excessive. You're warm. You're warm. Okay, good. Well, you know, we started with a cold cold <laughs> situation <laughs> now we got the worm situation okay so um the reason i uh i thought to do that was i was looking on youtube but uh just typed in doom that came to sarnath and i found a a metal band <laughs> that had done a song i <laughs> um, and tons and tons and tons and tons of readings um and then i thought um well maybe we should just start the show what are you, you all ready have, do you yeah. do you want to see if you can get Jason or and I'll let me take see a quick bathroom yeah break. take a quick bathroom it's about break twenty seconds yep you're right back all right we got we got Alex and uh, yeah um, Alex the one the one I think I mentioned to you I was listening to a podcast I I found it out because he said it again it's called the Lack. Have you heard of this podcast? Almost nobody has. No. Um, it's a guy named Benjamin Studebaker. He's, I think, like a... He seems very young, which is a very annoying. Um, Oxford guy or Cambridge or something. He's an American. He has a couple of podcasts. This one is... They, they talk about some movie, um, and then they... Three of them write essays or responses to it on the topic of the movie. Um, so they have some French art movie in the latest one, but they do, you know, sort of straight up movies as well, not just French art movies. Uh, and they talk about like what it says about, uh, the people, uh, who made it, what it says about us, that sort of thing. Anyways, he was one of, one of the ones who's saying, I have a friend in Washington state, uh, Washington DC and, um, and then somebody else says, uh, everyone does. <laughs> 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 and then um, it, said, it said how if you work for this um, big um, evil corporation that, uh, you know, Raytheon, etc., um, uh, you have to drink some of the Kool-Aid, but you don't have to drink it all um, in order to operate there and to, you know, do your job. Um, and that's where it came from. I think I mentioned to that to you before. Because I just thought that was, you have to drink some of the Kool-Aid, but you don't have to drink it all. Yeah, I will say the uh, big federal contractors very big on the kind of corporate culture. Mm. 
and they put a lot of work into making sure that everyone is fully participating in the corporate culture. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's definitely a thing. If Paul was here, um, he would... He would talk about. He he told me a terrible story about how um he went to a corporate uh, party, Christmas party. It was like in January, right? <laughs> of the pandemic or something, and um, everything went well. He was he had to go because he was the photographer for it because he's a photography guy, right? Um, he's not a party guy. But anyways, everything went well. It was even at a nice place, and the the um. Uh, there was uh, what's that car service out front of a house uh, of a valet valet yeah everything was fine and at the end um, they couldn't find his his keys <laughs> for his car no <laughs> and, and he uh, and his boss is like leaving and he says well, what, what, why are you still here Paul they can't find my keys so his boss drives him uh, to work where he can get a car a work car he's going to lend him a work car and then he has to go to the uh, condo manager to ask the condo manager to let him into or apartment manager to let him into his apartment because he, all of his keys were on that ring right <laughs> the car was in the parking lot and then he had to go back to the place and get uh his car broken into by the uh i was like oh yeah Corporate culture <laughs> makes you want to drink. The <laughs> oh, terrible. What a terrible story. Lesson is don't go to parties. Just start podcasts. That's what I say. Here we go. Everybody back, right? I don't think I got Jason. Mm -hmm. No. Not nothing. Got nothing. Here we go. Okay. Uh, Jesse. Uh, who's next? Evan? Okay. Uh, Trish? Uh, Maybe. No, no, no. It's yeah, yeah. Trish or Connor, and then Alex. I think. Uh, Trish, Connor, Alex. Okay. Okay. Jesse, Evan. Am I missing somebody? Trish, Connor, Alex. That's I don't. Everyone think who's here. Yeah, I think that's everybody. Here we go. People who are still here about what's coming up. So busy bodies next week. Trish, you're in for that if you're still here. Nope. <laughs> okay. Al Murek, two weeks from now. I was now. muted. Oh, okay. I was muted. Sorry. How long is uh, Busybody? You're asking questions I do not know the answer to. However, I'm guessing about six hours. Let's find out. Okay. I could probably do that. Uh, Audible.com. The Busybody. There it is. And. We know it. Five hours, possibly... 32 minutes. Ah, good. I knew it couldn't possibly be as long as Dancing Aztecs. <laughs> no, no, that was a that was a too many characters book. <laughs> fun, but too many. Um, I, I expect the Busybody to be more fun. Um, Al Murek is in two weeks, uh, same times, and Connor's reading of that. And I saw I have not listened to uh, uh, Graveyard Rats yet, Connor, but. I'm looking forward to that. It, it's a lot longer than I remembered it being. Graveyard Rats. It's like an hour 20 or something like that. Yep. Yeah, it's about that. I'm also, uh, by the way, with um, I'm going to record later today another uh, Howard story. Which one? Um, the Garden of Fear, which oh, yeah, relates yeah. to our Murek. Mm. So I'm going to send it to anybody else who's going to be on that show. Excellent. Um, I'm going to be on it. Cool. I will send it to you. This is, it's going to, it's interesting. 
cool. the relationship between these two stories. So, mm-hmm. yep. Excellent. Um, and then we got The Door into Summer. Uh, oh, The Doom City by Arkady and Boris Sturgatsky. And then The Door into Summer, and then nothing else is scheduled for the moment. Although I will note um, that a bunch of people already signed up signed up for The Sword of Wellerin. Um, not that we have a date for it, but that sounds like one uh, Connor would want to be in by Lord mm-hmm. Dunsany. Is that yeah. Dunsany? I okay. believe it's a short story as well. Cool. That yeah. sounds interesting. Yeah, he's fun. Um, yeah, I'm, I, I, would... I enjoy Dunsany also. Cool. He's, he's a bit lordy, but he doesn't lord it over you. <laughs> 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 um, I got a... Look. Uh, uh, not a Conan story, a Robert E. Howard story. Super short. Uh, one, two, three, four, five pages. Uh, called The Curse of the Golden Skull from Ooh. The Howard Collector, 1967. Um, I'm going to send that to you. I've, I've made notes on it, but I do not remember it. But I'm still trying to push you towards Skullface because I like Yellow Peril. Uh, and maybe okay. this will be our way into it. Uh, given it's only cool. like five pages, right? Do you want me to make an audiobook of it? Of course. Sure. Okay. Never a time. Wait, yeah. Don't ever expect an answer other than <laughs> of course. <laughs> I mean, if you give me a priority, you know, which should we? Should, which should I do first? Lord of the Rings or uh, or uh, what's that? Um, Skullface. Oh, right. Skullface. Yeah, I'll say do Skullface first because it's already public domain. Lord of the Rings is next year. You, you have to you have to train up for Lord of the Rings, okay? <laughs> I'm getting, you know, yeah, I'm I'm, not, I'm getting better at my West Country accent, right? Oh, so good. Maybe good. I can I can do the Hobbits all right. Please. Um. Uh, yeah, we'll see. I, I I need you to work on your Radagast. He's from India. Are you sure? I'm sure he isn't, but it's funny to say. Yeah, well, possibly. I think Radagast is actually a, an Eastern European god. Oh, that's where the name came ah, from. Ah, that that sounds so. I'm aghast if, if, to hear that. Yeah, if he was from anywhere, he would be from Eastern Europe. So that's interesting. <laughs> yeah, he he feels like a Baba Yaga sort of guy. Um, yeah, he could be. There's uh, the Curse of the Golden Skull. Uh, nice. Starts okay. with Rotath of Lemuria was dying. Oh, it's a Lemuria story. I think so. Very cool. It's Lemuria. Yeah. Um, there's a lot, a lot of these fun. It says six pages, but the first page is the table of contents. Uh, and they're very short well, pages. Incredibly short, yeah. Incredibly short, yeah. Um, there's, there's, uh, that's the good news. You'll never run out, really, basically. <laughs> You're in late 60s, still reading old Robert E. Howard stories. I'm shocked how much he wrote. It's it crazy, genuinely- right? Mm-hmm. Like astounding. Because, you know, I keep on thinking, oh, they must already all be done. No. Um, considering, and there's just more. Conans more, have been a done, lot of them, but not like not everything else. Even um, I was looking around at new ones. I have uh, some. What's what's his name? The Puritan fella, Solomon. His character, Solomon Kane. Solomon. There's a like novella that's quite long, mm-hmm. and I own it in a paperback, and that's never been done. What's and I'm it, pretty what's certain the title? it is. It's like um. This, the Skull in the Moonlight or something. Mm. If you give me a second, I will look at my bookshelf and find it. And 
Uh, Meanwhile, Jesse, I'll tell you, I picked up The Dispossessed because I oh, saw yeah. it was coming up, and yep. I'm about a quarter of the way through it, and I can't say I'm enjoying it, but it does have it's, some interesting It's an ideas. anarchist book, not a neoliberal book. <laughs> <laughs> and you say, I'm not neoliberal! And I say, are you sure? <laughs> who, are you, who are you voting for? Are they neoliberals? Um, if you want to be added, I will add you to it. I'm actually, yeah, go ahead and add okay. me. I'll have to check with my sister. Um, uh, she will she allow you to read an anarchist book? <laughs> she she doesn't control my reading habits. Oh, okay, it's more, good. more that you know. Sometimes she she does church um, uh-huh. and they do Zoom and she does the liturgy sometimes. So okay. I'll have to check and. Do you share her. the same desk? No, I'm in the basement okay. and she does church from upstairs. Is it noisy? But, uh, well, I mean, you can hear each other from the basement. Uh, so, you need, you need mean, to get those panels like Con. Did you see Connor's recording setup? Uh, no, but I know some people have really, really fancy recording booths. I don't have that. I just have. I call it his you know. Catan hole because <laughs> he's got a bunch of Catan. Oh, <laughs> yeah, it is like that. Um, yeah, I got a. Those, I, they're uh, just foam pads, but they are dirt cheap and they uh, do improve. I, I've, shockingly, they're the most important part of the setup and despite being the cheapest. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But they don't actually like block sound. No, but they dampen, they dampen noise a lot. Yeah, they do, they do a little bit, but uh, yep. They stop uh, any echoes. Mm-hmm. It's, um, uh, as long as you... Um, you uh oh so your your big problem is the furnace you think the what the furnace uh for me um yeah it it hasn't come on i it's i've had myself muted yeah you're, it's not on right now i can't hear it's not any. running right now yeah. no so it's not ruinous so it's, I don't it's think. intermittent <laughs> yeah mm-hmm. uh, i was thinking like if 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 my mom becomes incredibly disabled and i had to move in with her I wouldn't mm. really be able to do a lot of podcasting because there's so many fucking dogs barking all the time. Oh, yeah. And, you know, if you have a dog and it's a barker, you can't stop it from barking. But nah. I, you could, like, make it like a sh- uh, podcasting shed. <laughs> you separate <laughs> it physically from the space and then put up a bunch of panels. You can cut down a lot of noise. But, Connor, you were saying some neighbors were making some renovations or something? Is that what you're saying? Oh, I think they're, I think they're actually moving in. Oh. The apartment opposite had been empty for a while, and uh, they, I think they were moving in because I just noticed that uh, I met the fella uh-huh. coming out of the place the other day. So, um, uh, but before I forget, I'll say the Moon of Skulls is okay. the Solomon Kane story okay. or novella. Mm-hmm. Um, That's a great title. It is good. It's, it's very uh, Robert E. Howard title. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> he's got great um his titles are always great. The one of my favorites is this The Skull in the Stars. Mm. Um mm, yeah. another one. Uh and uh I wish that uh I don't know, I wrote a short story a while back, like maybe a year ago, and that would have been a title like that would have been perfect for it. But uh I just can't figure one out. Let's <laughs> steal it. <laughs> I mean, no, I can't. He steal. doesn't. He doesn't own it. He's dead. True, and but, and most people, I mean, most people will not uh, 
No. But more importantly, if you put his name in it, he looked over at the shelf and Mr. Howard was standing there or whatever. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't, uh, it's just a reference. Yeah. It, 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 it's an illusion. Um, I just sent you the uh, original Weird Tales version. Look how cool. beautiful that cover Fantastic. is. And it got the cover. Great. Um, Isn't that nice? Me, I'm just downloading it. I, right I assume that the um, cover is related to the interior story. It looks like it is. I wonder. Uh, is that Solomon Kane? Wow. No, I don't, I don't think that is. Oh, it could be. On the it interior, we got a, a very dark skinned black person being slapped or punched by a white dude. Yeah, it look, and it all looks very. Uh, oh wow. Um, interesting. It looks nothing like the um, the cover of the paperback I have. No, I was I was wondering whether it might be the same art, but um, no, it's not. No, no. Interesting. Okay. We have a reference to a clumsy musket, so it could be Kane. I, I bet he the usually doesn't. Solomon. Okay, go. Here for we go. It. Yeah, it's definitely a Solomon. Well, it's definitely a Solomon Kane story, but um. It, the guy on the cover does not look like how I would imagine Solomon came. The, the quote says, The giant's roar of triumph had scarcely died on his lips before the two were falling into darkness. So if you can find that part of the story in like an e-text, you can see if that's supposed to be Solomon Kane slapping the dude on the bridge. Mm. And I would bet it is, but that is not what we picture Solomon Kane is looking like today. But Conan doesn't mm. look like Conan in the original <laughs> either, right? Often yeah, he's not even yeah. depicted. Um, yeah, true. And also these first two pages, this is great. They're a, a spread. So those two images mm-hmm. are meant to go side by side. Yep. I'll I'll Photoshop them together uh, and have an ex- excellent yeah. image for the audiobook. Oh, yeah. Neat. That's, that's yeah. what I did. I photoshopped. Oh. Photoshop them to make them all black like that instead of whatever. But uh, the original should be up on archive.org if you want to take it from the original rather than mine and you can keep some of the color of the paper or whatever. Ah, okay, cool. Yeah. Yeah, I might do that. Um, and I only cool. included the first page of the table of contents because uh, it, yeah, it's on there, right? So. Uh, oh, mm. no, no, no. This is a serial. So there's another. We're going to get another oh. one. There should be a second. Let's scroll down far enough and we should find. There it is. July 30th. Wait. Why does it start? In, oh, I may have fucked this up. Uh-oh. Page 861 and then 114, 115. Yeah, this might be fucked up. I might need to fix this. Oh, Weird. Yeah, look, the table the of contents is in the famous, wrong order, but it is... The uh, splendors of forgotten Atlantis are vividly painted in the riot of death, which brings this story to a conclusion in next month's Weird Tales. On page, uh, nice. what, what is this, 33 of the uh, files, but not 33, you get a lady tied up on a uh, altar, which is looking very awesome altar, and then Solomon Kane hitting some dude with a uh, butt of his gun. Yeah, it's some sword fighting. Okay, so this is also an a, uh, Atlantis story, is or it? tangentially related. Oh. Did, There's something wrong you with say, this file. Trish, that um, there was a reference to Atlantis in the... Uh, something, wrong. Not. something wrong with this file. It's fucked up. 
Yeah, we suddenly skip back from page four hundred no eight hundred sixty to page one fifteen. I don't know so. how I fucked that up. Uh, what's it called? It's called uh, the Moon of Skulls. I probably did this a long time ago. Of Skulls, search. Mm. I'd have to do it again. Oh, I see. Okay, yeah, they, they're out of order. Yeah. I haven't gone through them enough to it. see if they're all there or not. I found the uh, uh, folder, so now I just have to s- see what went wrong. It, it, this often happens with um, I have to re page number, but it looks correct, so I'm not sure what's wrong here. I'll re- try redoing it right now. Oh, um, that's uh, that's I'll take that up. Um, just so, so many great books coming up on Gutenberg right now. It's amazing. Did you did you uh, have a look at that? Um, I know you saw it, Connor. The uh, was a Serbian fairy tale book. Um, no, I didn't have a look at it. But got a click see through it. on I that. The, the art is so good the, uh, inside. I just picked yeah. one. You know. Ah, okay, cool. Um, yeah, and I also said I was going to tell you about some Polish fairy tales that are awesome as well. Yeah, please do. I may have already told you about them. I'm going to take off now, guys. Um, no worries. But, uh, cool. <laughs> Thank you. Talk to you later. Good. Thanks, Trish. Mm-hmm. See you on All Twitter. Right. See you. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. All right. I'm going to just try okay. and re- re- reconstitute this file and send it to you before I upload it, and hopefully it will be correct when I do. The awesome. uh, Moon of Skulls. All right. What the heck went wrong Somebody. with it? All the files uh, pages are small, like kilo, you know, ninety-three kilobytes or something, except for the cover, which is thirteen megabytes. Weird. Why? Because it's got color. Yeah. Um, all the white comes across as white, whereas all the all the um, uh, and all the black comes across as blood. So uh, there is no uh, blending, right? It's very, very simple. Um, but anytime there's a picture, it always like takes, makes the file way bigger. So mm. it's a trade off. But on the other hand, I'm just going to save it and see if I can make it save properly. What's the name of this file? It was the moon of skulls. There it is. So try saving it like that. Re- Name. Yeah, tell me of, of a Polish fairy tale. Okay, so um, this is uh, is the Polish version of Cinder- Cinderella, which I think makes way more sense than the uh, Brothers Grimm okay. version. Because, uh, you know, brothers, the Brothers Grimm, their whole idea was to conglomerate a bunch of fairy tales, and it was sort of an effort to um, create a universal culture for Germany because Germany was very divided. I'm not initially. Mm -hmm. Yeah. With like Hochdeutsch and Plattdeutsch and like people in the mountains and people, uh, in the valleys and stuff. Um, okay. But they have a fairy godmother. Uh, yeah. In in their version mm. of Cinderella, right? Mm -hmm. Which is the one that I grew up with, uh, which, which when you think about it is a bit odd. Like why does Cinderella have, a fairy godmother. Does everybody have one? Mm-hmm. Um, why does she never show up before that? Uh, so in the Polish version, it's a little bit different. Uh, in Polish folklore, there is a tree 
called a linden tree, mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. it's called a a uh, lemon blossom tree, I think, also. Um, and the folklore is if you uh, – well, this is kind of a sacred tree in a sense, or t- highly thought of. Lots of animals mm-hmm. live in the tree, and it also has these beautiful flowers, and it smells nice. Um, and the folklore is if you bury it or if you plant a tree over the top of someone's grave um, – then it's a linden tree, then the person's soul or spirit will sort of go into the tree. And this tree is like a provider for nature as well. It's an important part of the ecosystem. Um, in the Polish Cinderella story, it's all the setup is the same. Mother dies, uh, then father dies, and the and Cinderella's left with uh, her horrible gram, her horrible stepmother. Um, except her a linden tree is buried over Cinderella's mother's grave. Mm-hmm. And so the story progresses as usual. You get the, there's the ball Cinderella can't go her mother, her stepmother and her stepsisters go and she runs outside to this linden tree and is crying at it because, uh, and sort of like uh, talking to her mother Right, like, oh, this is so awful. I feel so bad. Mm-hmm. And her mother's spirit sort of appears over the top of the tree, Aha. and and says, "Don't worry, I'm going to take care of you." And then all of the animals from the tree that live in the tree um, come down and turn into the coachman, right? And mm-hmm. then there's the coach and all that, and the horses, and then they take her off to the ball. And then the rest of the story is pretty much the same. Um, as the rest of it. But I think that makes so much more sense than the fairy godmother. It does. Right. It's, it all, it wraps up the story really nicely. Uh, cause then it's like her mother is kind of protecting her. It makes sense that her mother can provide these things because the linden tree is sort of a provider for the environment Mm -hmm. and for animals and even for people. Um, so the spirit kind of can use those things to provide for, her daughter. Um, anyway, that's what I would say. That's what I was going to tell you about is like, this should be the version of Cinderella that people know, mm. but because that is kind of a regional folklore, like more specific to Poland. It didn't, I get, as, Germans, it didn't get as uh, big a t- attention. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Germans are like, Oh, they didn't, they don't have this folklore about the linden trees. Mm-hmm. They're like, I don't get this. What is this? So that's why you have uh, this who, incongruent. Who, yeah. It wasn't, it wasn't the bros who did it. It was the, people in germany right they're like we don't uh, have linden trees here so yeah yeah that's that's probably true the story was just adapted yeah um uh and i yeah i don't think like literally the brothers Grimm were like we got to change this no um, but uh it was changed but i think that story version of the story is much better so did you uh did you read that one i wrote was it yesterday uh, about uh basically it was based on an image of um the cat uh, I think I mentioned it in the podcast today. The Puss in Boots? Uh, yeah, Puss in Boots image. I did not. Uh, I'm going to read it to you. Um, I think it's hilarious. Sure, go for it. <laughs> I have to find it first. Um, I, I also was writing about, in the Squeakor thing, I was writing about somebody in the comments of one of the blog posts about it was um, like, today's LGBTQ2I plus S. Uh, group, uh, uh, we can now have a lot more gay, lesbian, uh, trans protagonists. And I thought, 
that sounds right, but is it true? <laughs> so I went looking and I found a mm-hmm. bunch of, uh, I'm like, I talked about, um, uh, there's this, uh, I got in trouble with Livervox because I linked to the in progress thing, but the first one was, um, uh, Herland. Have you read Herland by Charlotte Perkins Gilman? Bet you haven't. No. It's pretty cool. Uh, you, uh, did you read uh, The Lost World by um, Conan Doyle? No, I haven't ever read that it's, either. It's really good, too. Um, Lost World is uh, Professor Challenger. He's like, he likes getting in fights with everybody. He has a really big beard like Brian Alexander. He uh, <laughs> <laughs> he looks like Brian Alexander. looks a little bit like him. And he's always getting in fights with people. And uh, he's like at some dinosaur uh, museum. And he, he lectures and is like, I'm going to South America to f- prove that dinosaurs exist. And they're like, you liar. And one guy says, I'll take that bet or something. And they go off to South America to prove that dinosaurs exist. And, of course, they find them um, up on a plateau in Brazil. Um, so they, mm-hmm. there's like it's, – it's basically – it's like Jurassic Park before Jurassic Park. And, uh, you know, the, se- the second Jurassic Park movie is called uh, The Lost World. It's a reference. Right. Okay. It's a reference to the story, right? Um, in any case, uh, so the, it's like that, except instead of finding dinosaurs in the South American plateau, um, uh, three, uh, adventurers from the United States, uh, come in a hot air balloon and discover a plateau full of lesbians <laughs> <laughs> who practice parthenogenesis <laughs> and uh, raise their babies to be Amazons, basically, right? And it's a fun, okay. fun idea book. Um, so there's that. And that's from like 1909 or something. Yeah, 1909. And then um, there's a story called The Revolt of the dot, dot, dot that I did on Reading Short and Deep. Um, that's uh, from 1894. And it's uh, set in the 20th century when men have taken on female roles and uh, women have taken on male roles. So, like, mm-hmm. the hu- a husband stays at home and does the housework and orders things, and the woman, like, go to the office and do banking. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so, that's not exactly gay, but listen to this one. This is the one that's in progress on LibriVox. That's somebody's recording. It's called An Anglo-American Alliance uh, by a guy named Gregory Kasparian. Turns out he's a Turk who moved to the United States and has really odd ideas about everything. Um, the title, the Anglo-American Alliance, is not just the United States and, and England getting together to conquer the world. It's also two women, uh, one British, one American, who are lesbians. Um, and one has a surgical operation to turn her into a dude, and then they get married after they have, okay. after oh. they do lesbian stuff from, uh, 18, uh, 1906. And then, wow. Uh, right? And it's a novel, um, with illustrations. Uh, Day Millions from 56 years ago, 1966. And that's, uh, like super great short stories, like four pages, five pages like that. And it's set in the far future where everybody's trans or a robot and it doesn't matter. Um, and it was published in wow. Playboy. Uh, you remember on what year was that? That's 1966. Yeah. Right. Okay. It's like, <laughs> they're like oh revolutionary <laughs> and like five years ago they were writing these books like we can do anything now it's like dude frederick Pohl did it in 1966 get over yourself yeah and he did it in six pages you, you your book's 180 pages or 300 pages or whatever <laughs> and it's a whole series right anyways um the next one 
uh, Oscar Wilde, you know, about picture of Dorian Gray, not picture of Dorian Gay. Um, you probably haven't read it. It's, it's good. It's a bit long. Um, it, uh, you know, everybody knew he was gay at the time. Um, although they didn't call Mm -hmm. him that and it wasn't illegal. It was just illegal to practice it. Right. Um, an editor of a magazine for, uh, I think his name was Lippincott, Lippincott's magazine, uh, invited uh, Conan Doyle and uh, Oscar Wilde to dinner. Um, and it says, I'm starting a new magazine. I want you two to write uh, me the first serials to go in it. And uh, Conan Doyle wrote a Sherlock Holmes. And uh, uh, Wilde wrote the novel, the only, I think it's his only novel, Picture of Dorian Gray, um, which is, it's really gay. Uh, if you haven't read it, it's very, very gay. Um, mm. but then, uh, it's about a guy who has parties and, uh, never gets old and looks at other dudes and he's got a secret, him, a secret up in his, you know, top of his attic or whatever. It's very interesting. <laughs> but he's also got all these books on the shelves that are like, they're gay 90s books and are yellow, par- uh, not yellow peril, yellow 90s books. And there's a yellow book. Oh, yep. Okay. Yeah. Like decadent. Yeah. Decadence. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but then get this. This is really cool as well. I said, if we branch out a bit over to our SF's gay twin brother, uh, crime and mystery, we can find Conan Doyle's brother-in-law, <laughs> literal brother-in-law. Uh, E.W. Hornung wrote a whole series of, about a gay burglar named Raffles. Um, uh, <laughs> okay. Raffles has a gay sidekick named Bunny. These characters and their gay adventures, uh, which include, include cross-dressing, were inspired by Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson's not gay enough relationship and Oscar Wilde and his <laughs> lover, Lord Alfred Douglas. Um, and it's, it's, it doesn't, you know, you don't see them having kisses or on sex, uh, on screen sex in the stories because they're burglars. It's not a kissing book. It's not a kissing book, but they're definitely pretty, uh, playing it close to the line. They're, they're always getting in sure. money trouble and legal trouble and stuff. In any case, um, I was just starting a list. I, I, then I had to go do something that was, uh, I just thought it's like amazing people, you know, saying, you know, John W. Campbell was an asshole to some gay guy. Uh, Samuel Delaney didn't like his book. Right. I just listened to, um, to, uh, uh, Luke Burridge do a review of Samuel Delaney's first novel. And, Luke was saying, there's too many parties. <laughs> like, um, you can disagree with, you know, uh, but the thing is, he was writing in the 60s. I, I don't know that all the characters were gay, but the books were pretty gay, right? So somebody was buying them and publishing them. Um, yeah. And, you know, well, I think, you know, the publishing was a bit more Wild West than it is today. At least it sort of seems like that. Yeah, no, um, they're much more consolidated now. There's more com- competition back in the day. It's all yeah, one Random House company now, Penguin Random House, Harper. Yeah, and um, so, but so it's not surprising that a lot of this stuff, which had a niche audience, but people were still publishing it, that this happened. That this, and people are interested know. in it too, and they know Oscar Wilde's mm. gay. They love going to his plays. Yeah, they yeah. invite them to their parties. It's just you know it's illegal, but that doesn't mean, and maybe it's immoral, but you can still. <laughs> well, I suspect um, probably you know the, the upper class the, was yeah. uh, oh they more accepting, him. and he was making fun of them. If you read uh, like his plays, that's what he was really known for, right? He, he has some fairy tales as well. 
but uh, wild. I mean, um, well, and also you know the Canterville ghost. I think yeah, is not not, it's a short not story. so much making it's fun a, of um, it's the family the aristocracy. Yeah, but it is making fun of kind of like the usurping of the aristocracy. It's fun by nouveau riche. Yeah. Um, it's not, but it's he not wasn't his an aristocrat. Uh, I don't. I you know there's so many semi-aristocratic people in the states. I do are in the UK. I do not know his lineage that well, but mm. he definitely knew the audience. Oh, he was American, was he? No, no, he's British. Okay, I I don't I don't know right. his family history though. Any, oh, okay. Anyways, yeah, long story yeah. short, here's my story from based on uh, the an image which I put at the end. It's called the cat's advice. Hans, the miller's son, was greatly dissatisfied. After setting the latest batch of grain to be crushed into flour in the, at the mill his father owned, Hans would walk to the edge of the woodland clearing where he lived and stare up at the seething summer clouds. On this particular afternoon, while the water wheel churned and the ground, and ground three sacks of wheat into powder, the mill's mauser, a large calico cat who didn't have a name, came up to Hans from out of the forest undergrowth and placed one paw on the miller's son's knee. What are you thinking about, Hans? asked the curious feline. Life, said Hans. Is this really all there is to it? Indeed, no, said the cat, and it placed its other paw on Hans's arm. I feel, I feel like I need to go on a quest. Really do something with my life, said Hans, still staring up into the turbulent, ownerless clouds. Quests are good, said the nameless cat. You can quest for mice or rats or birds. There are many options for a young, strong thing. I guess, said Hans, still sitting and staring. What more could one want, asked the cat, who was becoming annoyed with the dim miller's son. I just figured, you know, there would be some purpose for me here on this earth, living in this dramatic forest as I do. So something more than just grinding grain all summer at my father's mill. You're really overthinking it, concluded the cat as it stalked off into the forest after a butterfly. For the next two days, the miller's son would, as always, set the millstone in his father's mill to grinding and then wander off to the edge of the forest clearing where it sat and stare up into the untethered clouds. On the third day, soldiers came. They burned the mill. They put Hans's father, the miller, to the sword. They abducted his little sister. He never saw her again. And they pressed Hans into their service. Where Hans could not find his purpose, some mysterious other had, and he had put Hans's hands to use for his. It sounds like a fairy tale to me. The end? <laughs> yeah, the end. And there's a picture. Yeah. Um, okay, yeah. Well, if you scroll yeah, to the end, cool. you see the picture. Um, all I did was I, I looked at the picture. I didn't think about Puss in Boots. Obviously, why is this cat, like, pawing him? Um, but, uh, I think it works. I think it works really well. It rem well, it's, uh, you know what? It's the cold equations. No. <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, I'm going to get canceled now. People are going to respond. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, well, uh, what does this remind me of? You ever heard there's, there's a Brothers Grimm story? Called like the scorpion and mm. the yeah frog or something like yeah, that. Yeah, frog and the scorpion. And I think that's Aesop, not uh, Brothers Grimm. Oh, okay. Aesop yep. fable. Yeah. And uh, yeah, and uh, it just ends with the the scorpion killing the frog. And they both die. And it's like yeah. Oh right. Okay. Um, 
I'm a oh, scorpion, says the scorpion. As yeah, they sink exactly. Into the yeah. I like the, uh, yeah. Um, <laughs> there's a degree of cynicism in that. <laughs> well, I also um, was thinking it's, it's true. Like, here he, uh, one of the things I noticed, like, when rereading it and fixing it and stuff, is the possessives. So it starts with Hans, mm-hmm. the Miller's son. So he is owned by the Miller, right? Mm-hmm. We don't mm-hmm. find the Miller's name. But then it's his father's mill, right? Owned. And then there's the cat. And I, I was like, what's the cat's name? Ah, oh, cat doesn't have a name, right? Um, and I always tell my students, make sure you're, you name all your characters. Uh, obviously, this only mm-hmm. has the two characters, but I'm like, it doesn't have a name. So I continue with, why doesn't it have a name? It's the, it, it says it's the Mills Mauser. It doesn't belong to the boy. It doesn't belong to the man. It belongs to the mill. Right. And then, mm-hmm. uh, and then the forest's undergrowth. So there's all these apostrophes. Right. And then, of course, the cat's advice is the name of the story. But the advice is like, you should go hunting mice. <laughs> And yeah, right, which is ridiculous for a, a hands to do, but it says, uh, you should go on a quest, quests are good. Um, uh, you're overthinking it, right? I didn't know where this story is going, but when I got to the end, I'm like, uh, on the third day, right? And this is, and that's why I went back and added that, uh, in this dramatic forest, <laughs> living in this dramatic, like, that's a call, a shout out to it being a sort of German fairy tale sort of thing, right? Where there's these mm-hmm. young men and, like, I always think about Hansel and Gretel, like, if, the story doesn't make any sense unless you understand there's a famine, right? There's a famine. Right, yep, yep. So, so it kind of is the, well, Hansel and Gretel is similar to the cold equations. It is. You simply cannot. Except it's a, uh, it's, 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 it's a wish fulfillment version of the cold equations, mm, right? Because the clever Hans is a Heinleinian character, uh, or in that, in Hans, clever Hansel and clever Gretel, right? They save each other. Um, yep. and they, and then they gaslight each other about their father's involvement <laughs> with their death, right? And they yeah. pretend like the witch wasn't the, wasn't the, uh, mom, the stepmom. So mm. it's 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 like a the opposite, right, of a mm-hmm. cold equation story. Whereas this is more like um uh I I keep I I was looking at the picture and I'm like what the fuck is he looking at? I'm like we don't see what he's looking at, right? He's wistfully looking. He's looking up though. So I'm like he's looking at the clouds, okay? And I see the clouds. So that's his emotions, right? You know that line from uh it was a dark and stormy night. Um so stuff mm. is happening. And and then I added untethered, unowned, or something like that. Clouds, and like okay, so th- there's a character in this story that's not in the story. It's the the king or whoever owns this army, right? They come, they mm-hmm. invade this Germanic forest, and they kill his dad, and they kidnap slash rape Mary, his sister, who doesn't even we don't even know she's in the story until that line, right? And then, mm. and then, uh, and then they make him become one of them. Um, is a child store, a child soldier story. This is very realistic in a certain sense. But what, what was the right oh. advice for the cat to have given him? The fact that there's a talking cat is, is nobody's upset about that, <laughs> right? What advice should yeah. the cat have given him? Well, if it was a dog, the dog would have f- fell in line and done what the new master said, right? But the cat is mm-hmm. independent. So the, I don't think the the answer to this story is uh, he should have uh, got a sword and fought him. 
right? <laughs> but, mm-hmm. uh, you know, he should have built a wall around like, like the th- uh, three little pigs, right? But some of the mm-hmm. lessons are like, you know, build your house out of, out of the rocks instead of straw. <laughs> Put effort mm-hmm. into it. But this is like, um, if you don't find a purpose for yourself, somebody will find a purpose for you. Ah, okay, yep. Mm. Where hands could not find his purpose, some mysterious other had, and he had put hands as hands for use. He had he yeah. put hands as hands to use for his, and the his is ambiguous there, but it's it's mm. designed to echo that mysterious other. It's like wow, you're you're there on the ground living in the forest, and then the war comes. What what's it about? You don't know. You you just have to do what they say because they'll kill you. Because you didn't have your own. Beat you. Well, mm. should have listened to the cat down on a quest. Yeah. Abandon your sister yeah. and father. He had too much time to think. That's his problem. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what the answer yeah. to this is, but uh, the cat's advice is a weird title for the story because the cat doesn't give the right advice. It just encourages them in the right direction. Mm. Well, from the cat's perspective, the cat gives some cat advice. Yeah, which is yeah, like, yeah. Well, I, kn- I knew that, that that the cat would be like, "Yeah, you should you should totally go and kill that thing over there that's running," and um, that would yeah. obviously be what the cat would want you to do. But mm. the fact that uh, it, you know that's not, I think the answer to this is like you should do something for sure. <laughs> but it, it, yeah, maybe it's not so important what you do as long as you do something. Yeah. Um, Otherwise, someone mm. else will. I mean, if you don't, if you, I think it's like part of my philosophy is if you don't actively combat, uh, outside ideas with your own thinking, you will get swept up in them, right? You get co-opted and press ganged into them. Yes. And so like, you know, if you, if you, if you aren't actively thinking about politics, uh, politics is actively thinking about you. Mm. Right. They, Mm. they are literally spending Billions of dollars on propaganda to try and convince you to buy things, to believe things, to have things injected into your body. <laughs> mm. And the thing is, is sometimes these are good things for you. Sometimes they're not good things for you. Sometimes they don't. Like, I always think about tampon ads. They don't really affect me, right? Because mm. no matter how much <laughs> they tell me I need them, I'm not the audience because it, it doesn't really affect me. But imagine you're a woman suddenly, Connor. I blink. Mm. I give you the magic uh, rainbow. Now you're a girl. Okay, you're gonna have to learn mm-hmm. a lot about um, menstruation that you never had to know before because you you know it in the abstract, but uh, what it feels like and how messy it is and that sort of thing. And then somebody's gonna yeah. say to you, um, "You should just get this." And you're because you're an ignorant fool, just became a woman suddenly. <laughs> Um, you're not going to sure. know that that's not correct or that there are better ways yeah, yeah. to manage these things, right? You're susceptible. Right. Because, you know, and where did they get their information? Like, I, I, I look at the old magazine ad for tampons and, and they don't say this is for inserting in your vagina. They don't say that. They're like, you know, very obtuse. Right. Mm. But, well, I, yeah. but they are selling it to you nonetheless. But, when did this become, when did, when, when did they start, uh, manufacturing, like, what did, what do women in primitive societies do? I don't know the answer. Do you? Sorry, when do, what do women, women in primitive societies that don't have access to, 
uh, whatever brand of tampons is the current hot trend or um, sanitary pads that are right. Whatever the current brand, like I don't even know the names. It's a pretty bad argument. Anyways, there's some brand of thing that's very popular, right? Mm. For women. I don't know the brand, but there's yeah. going to be one like Coca-Cola for tampons. Okay. For sure. Yeah. <laughs> so w- w- at one point, um, did, this become a, a technology like were the Romans doing this? I don't think so. Yes. Were they? Uh no, no. I I think there's been I think I mean, if you think about it, this is one of like the primary needs of human beings. There's always women sure. in society. There's always but been But there hasn't always been tampons, right? No, but I know there were like uh he invents otherwise. the cave he he invents the wheel and then he says, uh, honey, look I made one for you. <laughs> I bet you sure maybe. Well, I bet you they invented a way to deal with this before they invented the wheel. Uh, uh, babies um, making babies. You know, maybe that's that's another good point. Maybe um, it was just you were constantly pregnant because the effect woman, of uh, right? of of birth control pills had profound effects on on women's lives, right? Yeah, yeah. But uh, um, it's so far back that sanitary napkins or whatever they're called. Um, not so much. What are they called? Tampons? No, tampons and what's the other thing? Uh, just pads, I think. Pads? Is that what it's called? Yeah. They're not called vagina I think pads. So. I'm pretty sure they're not called vagina pads. I think they're just called maybe sanitary napkins oh or pads. My, um, my brain is not good for remembering well, stuff like this. I remember it because when the iPad came out, everyone made oh, fun of it for that reason. interesting. Because at, le- at least in Australia, I think we just call them pads. Yeah, and so iPad pads. was a... Was a fun well. Uh, people smirked at that name initially, and and now it just became so ubiquitous that no one even thinks of it anymore. Um, I remember yeah. I went I went I was in like a, li- a very little kid and I was in the bathroom as kids do go. I found some box of something under uh, the counter in the bathroom, and I'm like, oh okay, mm-hmm. and I stuck it on the wall, <laughs> and my mom said. What are you doing? What is this? And I said, I thought it was like an air freshener or something. <laughs> like it was mm. a it was a stick on little panty liner or something. I don't know. Yeah, because you know, you know, yeah, uh, I I was never a girl, so I never had to learn. <laughs> mm. But uh, uh, at some point, you encounter this thing. So the propaganda for that doesn't seem to have any effect. But the Boy Scouts, I almost ended up indoctrinated, yo. I was very lucky. By the Boy Scouts. Oh, yeah. Narrow escape. And I know a lot of kids who, you know, end up in the army or end up like friends of mine ended up lawyers. It's terrible. Mm. Got to be careful. Mm. You might end up being a lawyer. That'll conform you. Turn you into a <laughs> conformer. Yeah. Don't don't be one of those. All right, definitely not. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, I might head off. I need Thank to get some you, lunch. Sir. I'm starving. Um, no problem. Have a great uh, yeah, one. Good to be on. Yep, you too. Thank you. Uh, talk, talk to you later. Yeah, I'll organize uh, closer to two weeks from now for uh, talking about more Howards. Sounds good. Thank you, awesome. sir. Alrighty. Bye. See ya.